Blackbox Radio. So we want to um, take some time to let everyone just introduce themselves so we'll know who's, who's actually here. And then we're going to delve into the topic. All right, ladies? Okay. So I said who I am. Um, Lenise? Hi, everyone. Lenise Stevenson. Um, I'm a social justice and education justice advocate. I am a doctoral scholar at Johns Hopkins University. My uh, research is around um, belonging for minority students. Um, and I also have a consulting firm. I work with superintendents um, to help them to shift their policies and practices and disrupt those inherently racist systems. Okay. All right. Excellent. Kalila? Hi. Good evening, everyone, uh, at least those of you on the East Coast. I'm Dr. Kalila Harris. I am Managing Director of K-12 Education Policy at the Center for American Progress. I am also a non-resident senior fellow with the Maryland Center on Economic Policy. Um, and I do a range of work on racial justice application to policy, um, particularly in the edu- K-12 education space. Um, and I organize with a number of organizations, in- including EduColor nationally and locally, most recently with the Black Mamas People's Assembly. Okay. And we have Dr. Jackson. Please tell us. Introduce oh. Greetings and Hotep family. I'm Dr. Theopia Jackson. First and foremost, I want to give a shout out for the brilliance of on this call. Sister Queen, you should be given your due for bringing this talent together. It's quite impressive thus far. Um, I have the honor of serving as the president for the Association of Black Psychologists. I'm also a licensed clinical pediatric psychologist, and I run a clinical training program, a clinical degree program at Saybrook University in Pasadena, California. So I'm calling in here from Maryland, and I am also a co-founder for a therapist in residency program which is in Oakland, and it's a program designed to train Black clinicians on delivering Black therapy that's grounded in Black psychology within our communities. I'm happy to be here. That sounds good. (laughs) Asia? Hi, everyone. My name is Asia Maxton, and I am an actress and a writer and an educator. I um, am a teaching artist. I've been a teaching artist here in the for for 15 or so years. Um, Currently, I'm an adjunct professor at Coppin State, teaching speech and theater, and I also teach uh, theater to the young people in an after-school program. Tanya, introduce yourself. Hi, uh, I, my name is Tanya Manya. I am an attorney uh, practicing in Maryland and the District of Columbia. I've been practicing for about 17 or 18 years now. Um, and after spending about a decade uh, representing companies with big law firms in the District of Columbia and Baltimore, I started my own firm to focus on representing individuals in employment related. Uh, litigation and, and other employment related. Uh, I've had my practice now for about six years. Um, in addition to doing litigation, we also do internal investigations, uh, both um, that are uh, requested by uh, individual employees and uh, on behalf of employers. And uh, I'm also on Labor and Employment Council of the State Bar. And I recently agreed to serve on the first inclusion. 
uh, Committee of the State Bar, and I'm a board member of the Public Justice Center, and I recently agreed to serve as the chair for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of PJC. <laughs> wow, amazing. All right, uh, Ms. Kira. Introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Kira, Kira Brown. I am owner and operator of Nail Fetish Salon as well as Nail Fetish Boutique. Um, one of the only Black-owned nail salons in Baltimore City. I really appreciate you ladies being here. And this is such a power pack of ladies. And um, the topic today is after COVID, after protests, and existing as Black Lives Matter. That matter and as black women. And so this is really a conversation. Like we need real solutions because COVID, well, we thought it would be over, but uh, we're still here. Um, they're still protesting too, which is amazing. Um, and we're still existing as black lives that matter. So all these things are concurrently going. What as black women, how can we address and more per, Baltimore City, because um, we're living in a uh, city that is really chaotic. And some live in the city, but I, I think most people here experience Baltimore City. So after we move past these things that we are seeing in our society right now, what's next for Black people or Black women in the community? Kalila? Yeah. Um, so good evening again. I'm honored to be here with all of you, especially my sis that owns a um, black nail salon. I got to get that information. Um, I've been extremely conscious in the last couple of months of only buy buying black to the uh, best extent possible. So that's definitely one way we all can move forward. Also want to apologize in advance. I'm here only because of Sister Queen, um, but I do have another event coming up. So I'm going to stay as long as possible, but I'm going to have to scoop in another 20 or 30 minutes. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I mentioned at the top of the discussion with my intro is um, I was able to collaborate with a group of around 20 Black mamas from around Baltimore. Uh, some are birth workers, some are artists, some are CEOs. Um, uh, you know, we felt like we needed to move beyond protests to action. Um, and oftentimes as a researcher and as uh, someone who's been doing policy for a couple of decades, you know, oftentimes the black community enters the legislative or policy space at the end of it, which is the protest phase. So um, for some reason, didn't feel like they had the privilege of writing a bill, uh, demanding that bill be entered into legislation, um, making sure that legislation passed uh, and being able to um, be involved in the implementation of that legislation. So our grounding was in the concept of we are enough. Baltimore City belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to elected leaders. It doesn't belong to appointed leaders. It belongs to the residents of the city. And our elected and appointed leaders need to act that way. And so when we think about the governor um, not passing current legislation by vetoing it, um, not passing the legislation approved by the Maryland legislature for HBCUs, not passing legisla legislation for there being um, a pre-release center for women. He, you know, he talks a good game, but ultimately the things that he does are very anti-Black, um, very anti-woman. Uh, and, you know, it's got to be enough of people saying, you know, they did and they didn't do. 
it is our city, this is our state, and we need to push demands. And not just for those of us who are privileged, and I do live in Baltimore City, I've been here for 26 years, but for those of us who are have more privilege, you know, I've heard so many people say things like, I like that governor because he's not taxing me anymore, or, you know, he's the education governor. I'm like, what now? Where'd you get that from? Um, and so he makes a good a, a political ad on television, but he blocks comments on social media so that people can actually give him fit, uh, feedback or express their um, displeasure with him. So there's so many things that we can be doing. You don't have to organize a people's assembly like the Black Mamas who did on Sunday. You can find our Facebook page and see um, the seven uh, point policy platform that we set forward. Now we didn't make up this policy platform. We actually pulled in the ideas of people already working in those spaces. We don't intend to start a new nonprofit. There's a nonprofit on every corner in Baltimore. you know, what we want to do is make sure people have plain language for the policies that advocates are fighting for. So you don't understand what defund the police is. Let me point you in the direction of leaders of a beautiful struggle. You don't understand the uh, black mama's uh, mortality rate. Let me point you in the direction of the Bloom Collective, Mom Cares, you know, other folk doing that work. You don't understand education. I'm an education expert. Knock on my door. I organize at the grassroots and the grass tops. I can tell you all you need to know about current. I can tell you all you need to know about HBCU. I got on my HBCU made shirt. I can tell you all you need to know about HBCU legislation in the state of Maryland and how to get engaged and make sure your legislators hear from you. So there's so many ways for people to get involved. We set that policy agenda out as a Black people's policy agenda in Baltimore City, and we hope others join us in using that plain language so everyday people know what to demand of their new mayor, new council president, new city council members, new comptroller to you know, work on their behalf and not just put their hands up and say, those are our leaders. Hmm. So I hear from you change because of the um, city council and the mayor were changing the, the leadership in Baltimore. I hear legislation and I hear information. You know, those are ways that we can move forward from here. And let me say that there's nothing wrong with protests. I don't, and I, I, okay. and I didn't make that clear or, or make it seem that I was saying that there's nothing wrong with protests. We need all of those strategies to get what we need for self-determination and black liberation. That's true. That's true. The protests and I mean, the racism that we've seen that we know is here that's now being recorded. Um, the layers of, of trauma that black people are experiencing how do we go forward and protest and still fight and um, also be able to implicate, no, excuse me, also be able to address the issues when it comes to, like Sister Camille said, legislation and all these other things. But we have such micro issues in our community. How do we address those and, and go through protests? And of course, we've got to go with COVID. Right. First of all, Sister Queen, I appreciate you calling me because I was actually sort of taking my time as to when I was going to jump in and sort of expand upon your first question, which is I want to start there. First okay. and foremost, I want to remind us that this is not the first pandemic that we have dealt with as people of African ancestry. We've been dealing with seen and unseen pandemics since we met certain people. Okay. Let's, I want to be clear about that. Secondly, when we put in, in this question of what is it that women will be doing, sisters will be doing, I also want to remind us from our African roots, 
that it, women have been holding it down since the beginning of time anyway. So we will continue to do what we've, we've been doing and more. And I also, when I say that, I'll be very clear, this is not a women versus men because that's a Western dichotomy. That's not ours. In our Africanness and our spiritness, this male feminine energy are one. So as I appreciate the, the, the storiedness that the sister Camille brought, I'm sure that my other dynamic sisters have other examples here, but it's by no accident that much of this energy has been led, led by feminine force because okay. all life starts with us. And when I think about the question of post-COVID, I'm not quite sure what that means. And, I'm, and, I, and, I'm, and to be clear for me, I'm less interested in post-COVID because, as I said, it's just one more set of pandemics that we're dealing with. What I'm more interested in is what I'm going to call this Black collective that we need to be doing. It's more than just what's happening in our isolated pockets, in our own little corners, in our different states, our different cities. How do we galvanize all of the Black genius and, and move away from the noise that distracts us and separates us from, you know, skin color, hair type, all those other things, social economic status that, you know, if I live a certain life, I, I, I'm no longer that black. So I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., Southeast, but yet I live a Prince George's life. Those are, in some people's mind, a dichotomy. No, it's, I'm still the same black. So for me, moving forward, I'd like to see us be much more intentional to work together collectively. And so what I was listening to Sister Camila, what comes up for me is I remembered that even now during this time of COVID, I want to give a shout out to the Institute of the Black World 21 and specifically the Black Family Summit, where they've been convening leadership, Black leadership during this time of the COVID. And there's about 40 of us on the call from, from the Association, for the National Association of Black Social Workers to Black Psychiatrists of, of America to the Association of Black Psychologists. There's many of us who've been doing this work and soldiering for a very long time. But what would it look like if we were able to write an agreement among us? Ooh. Right, a solidarity agreement among us that it becomes a black force while we're still doing our own individual club thing. So that when Sister Camille is trying to take trying to take on the, the mayor or the governor in, in, the, in the Baltimore area, you know, she reaches back and she's got this force behind her. A one place all black. We have our attorneys, everyone's right here to keep each other's back. We're trying to figure out why the COVID is showing up in disproportionate ways in our communities. We should have to look outside of us for that answer. We should already have, have, we have all of our black genius that tells us what that science is about. And that's who's our, who should be our gatekeeper. So for me, this psychology, and I like what Sister Camilla said about the protests, we are all protesting right now. In my mind, for me, the civil rights movement was a catalyst for this moment, a prelude. And we are at a moment in time now where people of African ancestry must, in fact, move this forward. We cannot go backwards. We can't stay still. By any means possible, we need to move forward. And the only way we can do that is to unite. I'm going to put in the chat room, the National Association of Black Social Worker took a, a gift for us. They created an all things black 
COVID website. And the intention of this website is to move all of our resources in one place. It will localize things nationally as well as by state. So that's one clear action. If we can collectively feed information there, it becomes a one-stop shop for all, all of our resources, from mental health to healthcare to social services to legal services. So I'll just, I'll add more as we go on because I want to hear from the geniuses here too, but I just want to sort of add that psychology, if you will, and keep us grounded in our culturalness that we're doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And we have everything we need to do to do this. We just have to stay woke. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Love that. Love that. Lanice, you want to jump in? Jump in. So I don't, um, I take the same perspective, but I think about, um, because I work at the, um, in, at the school supervision level, all the way down to the teachers, I recognize that we can shift policies, right? But the system stays the same. There are policies in place right now to ensure that students are receiving an excellent and equitable education. But when you walk in the classroom, that's not happening. So I'm um, more focused right now on ensuring that whatever policies we do put in place, that they are actually implemented and that they're measurable, not just, uh, you know, with high stakes tests or things like that, but we can see it every single day. I was just on a call with a school district in Colorado today. They were reading um, Zaretta Hammond's book on culturally responsive uh, pedagogy. And they thought it was something that an add-on that you just do. And when I started to break down, no, it is a mind shift. It is being able to see people who you are there to serve first. But because the systems have prepared them and rewarded them for um, taking a Eurocentric stance on teaching and learning, that's where the core issues are. So we can shift policies. I'm all about that. But if we're not shifting practices and holding people accountable and making them feel maladjusted, then whatever we have in place is just going to be, uh, you know, the letter of the law, not really the spirit of the law. We have to demand that people value us and our children from the very beginning. That requires that we not only look at policies, but we look at the way in which we are reflected in the media and that we stop giving money to companies who don't reflect our values. So I look at this uh, problem holistically and I look at it from, a a scarce resource um, perspective. I look at Baltimore and I'm just in disbelief that the way in which particular neighborhoods are intentionally disinvested in. And the neighborhoods that have the most are invested in. And it has to do a lot of times with what happens behind closed doors. And it's, I'm just over a lot of the things that have been going on because at the, when all is said and done, you can change the figurehead. The things are still the same until we demand, like Sister uh, Dr. Harris said, until we actually hold our elected officials and any leaders, any community leaders accountable for what they say that they're going to do. And then we have boots on the ground to help them to achieve whatever goals that they have. If I may, I appreciate what Sister Lanisa is saying. I, I wholeheartedly, and yet I want to underscore how complex this is. If we appreciate the African proverb, it takes a village to raise a child, I submit to you what happens when the village is hurting. 
So as we are doing this external work, which is completely needed, I also want us to look inside, look inside of ourselves, inside of our community. We still need to do our own healing. Many of us are still walking around traumatized in our black skin, taking, buying into all the negativity, the negative messages, what they say, the lie, the lie of white superiority and the lie of, of black inferiority. We're still indoctrinated with that with that disease. And so we have to do all of this external work, but unpack, love up, appreciate Zola up on our people so they can wake up and be healed and continue to do this work in this good fight. I think so. Since that's over the floor, I think Dr. Bettina loves work um, really starts to talk about that. um, Especially when she talks about freedom dreaming, when we begin to dream about not what, or we stop fighting against what we want and start fighting for what we actually want. And Dr. Harris, you talked about that as well. But when we really engage each other to really think about what we want to actualize, what is our ideal state? And then how can we actually get there? I think a lot of times we don't even understand the root causes of the issues that we're facing. And um, Dr. Jackson gets to what you're saying. We are in pain right now. And we do have, but we do have the medicine. We know exactly how we're supposed to do this in terms of members of the Association of Black Psychologists and other woke black psychologists, right? Because many of us too are walking around in black skin and not truly awake to who we are. So for example, we have the emotional meditation circles, which came to us through the vision of Enola aired with the Community Healing Network. This was back in, I want to say, maybe 2012. And the idea of these emotional emancipation circles is that they are grounded in the values of what it means to be of African ancestry. And it's things that, that feels very familiar to us in terms of truth, divinity, our spirituality, the essence of us. But more specifically, we design these curriculums so that we, we turn them over to the community. We train people in community to have what I'm going to call courageous healing conversations, to bear witness to each other's story, and there's clear tools and strategies for how to recognize when the lie is operating in their life, and then how to respond, and how to ground themselves in who they are to find. So we're very clear. We have what it needs, but we just have to continue to push it out there. I'm going to close by saying with the American Psychological Association's own stats, it says that of all the psychologists, of all of them, regardless of their discipline or their practice, I should say, only 20% are people of color. Of that 20%, only 4% identify as Black or African American. And of that 4%, how many is woke? So we have to understand that we, when we talk about mental health, when we talk about services, it's not about accessing services. It's about critically holding the services that are out there accountable to the needs of our people. Because otherwise we are turning our folks over to something that's going to socialize them to always being sick. And I would submit to you that the emotional emancipation circles is one way of doing healing that is not based on Western therapy because we heal in many ways. Our sister who has the nail shop from our beauty beauty parlors, our barber shop, those spaces, having those conversations has always been part of what's kept us to be here. There was no therapy in those first 400 years or the 200 is Jim Crow, but yet we're still here. How did we do that? 
because our mamas, our papas, our families, our ta- they taught us. There was kitchen table conversations. There was sister circles going on. There was brother throwdown. So we, we have a way of healing, but, but we've been distant from that. We're not recognizing each other, seeing each other, and loving up on each other in that Zola activating love way. So I'm just going to close by saying, as we continue the conversation, that's what feels important to me is for us to remember how complex this is, that we have to do the righteous work that we're doing and recognize that we have people who still need to be healed. Mm, okay. All right. Tanya, jump in. So, yeah, I'd like to speak to, to all of those points, and I'll try to keep it as quickly, quick as, as I can. Um, first, I just want to say that, you know, I just want to acknowledge that I feel like we are in a moment, like we are in a historical moment right now. And I say that because as an employment attorney, I do internal investigations. You know, my background, my undergraduate background is in psychology. And I have, for most of my career, uh, had to use social science research on discrimination and prevalence of racism in all facets of, of American society. And so it's something I'm very familiar with. And yet, and still, six months ago, if I had said to the average human resources manager at a Fortune 500 company, you know, something about microaggressions, or if I had talked about systemic racism, they would have looked at me sideways. They just would have looked at me like I was crazy. And so we really have advanced, like COVID has forced us to advance years in terms of telecommunications and virtual meetings and so forth. The the unfortunate, like the death of George Floyd and the protests, have done the same in terms of our general wokeness. Like there is a greater awareness among soccer moms in Iowa that this is a real thing. And and I think that it is, you know, if there is any, there is any silver lining to watching a man be killed over nine minutes, that's what it is. Because I do believe that we have an opportunity right now to take that horror and turn it into real policy change, real change, not lip service, not public statements of support, but real policies that change the way companies do business, change the way they hire and recruit, change the way we gauge how we measure people's abilities and potential and contributions, change the way we talk about what's good and what's bad and what's valuable, all these things. I, I feel like we have the opportunity right now if we build on this tragedy to turn that into uh, things that really do, really do inert to the benefit of people of color, specifically and particularly black people, particularly black women in ways we haven't done for a couple of decades. And in my work, I, I see every single day um, situations where black women are still looking out for everybody, but everybody else, and they're not getting the same in return. Um, and I think one, one of the good things that has come out of the last couple of months of, of protests and all of the media attention to these issues is that people have a heightened awareness that you can be pro-Black and pro-Black women, and it doesn't, that doesn't mean anti-white. It is really just trying to counterbalance the, the discussion because we start from a pro-white, <laughs> white supremacist, you know, history grounded in chattel slavery. And so we have to talk about these things in a strident way to get to balance. And, and that's going to take probably another couple of generations. 
but we've made a lot of progress. And I'm really personally inspired and encouraged by that. Um, at the same time, talking about the, the psych psychological piece of it and self-care, like I'm angry and I'm not an angry person, even though I'm accused of being angry all the time when I'm really just, you know, being strident and like speaking my mind, I'm not an angry person. Uh, but I am angry now. I've been angry for the last couple of months. <laughs> um, and what I've decided to do selfishly or whatever, I, I don't really care if people think it's selfish, is I'm just not dealing with educating white people about shit. I've decided I do work that addresses these issues. I am working on supporting black people. I've kind of always focused on that, but it hasn't been you know, considered socially acceptable. But at this point, I just don't care. My work is targeted at helping people of color, specifically and especially black women. And I'm just not gonna be apologetic about that and I'm not gonna explain it. I'm also not willing to, to, to help white people feel comfortable with these discussions. They need to go do that work somewhere else. They need to go read a book or go talk to somebody else who doesn't do what I do for a living every day. But I don't have the bandwidth for it. And you know what? I don't care what they think. <laughs> and that's okay. Uh, you know, I realized that a couple of weeks ago and I just decided to be more deliberate and intentional about putting myself in spaces with black women because I don't do it enough. <laughs> Um, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm from an inter a multiracial family. My husband's white, my other's white. <laughs> I'm surrounded by white people. I love them, but their experience is very different from mine. And sometimes being in their family makes me acutely aware of the disparities because I see it. And when I, you know, before everything that has happened over the last couple of months, to hear people pretend that, they're, that these disparities aren't real, when I know and I see every single day that they are. When I see that my husband is younger than me, doesn't have my credit score, doesn't make what I make, but he can go get a car with no driver's license and they'll let him take it, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it enrages me. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm just not, I think that, the, so the point that I'm making, I know I'm rambling, you know, got this therapy for me, but I, I think the point that I'm trying to make is that everybody should take advantage of this, of this moment in whatever way feels comfortable for them and be okay with it, whether it's protesting. Like I can't, I wasn't out protesting because I have some conditions that make me scared that I'm gonna die. And, I, and I'm worried if I go to the hospital, they're gonna turn me away because I've had that experience. <laughs> Even as a Harvard and Stanford trained lawyer who knows how to speak, knows how to convey what she's experiencing, I've had a doctor tell me, oh, just go home when I had something wrong with me that could have killed me. So I, I, I'm scared, I, I can't protest, but I can focus on my work. I do pro bono consultations to make sure that people know their rights. Um, and, and I think that everyone should focus on doing something, something that is concrete and that makes specific asks of the people who, who are empowered to do the thing uh, because we do have this moment and whatever you have to do to keep your sanity, just, just do it, take care of yourself. Because just living as a person of color in America every day is bad enough. And, and the conditions right now, Yes, there is this sort of this sort of superficial groundswell of support, but that also has provoked, as we know, a lot of backlash. And you know, I, I know I have friends who are in academia uh, who they're getting um, you know these social media posts where people are contacting them and calling them racial slurs. I have since and since Donald Trump is in office, I have people that contact me and call me all kind of racial slurs. And they don't know what I am. They call me everything. 
Um, and so these are things that are new. And I think you just have to, you have to take care of yourself, but make sure that you're doing something that is ultimately tied to a concrete ask of somebody. Love that. Love that. Um, here I'm coming to you in Asia, but Jill Picard is in. So um, introduce yourself, Sister Jill. Thanks, everyone. Uh, please excuse me for joining late, but um, I had a town hall meeting about uh, health care in the 41st District. I'm Jill Carter. I'm a state senator. I represent the 41st District in Baltimore City. I'm also an attorney, primarily criminal defense for most of my career. And as a legislator, I primarily focus on justice and equality issues, criminal justice reform, police reform, all the way back to the early, uh, to the to the late 90s, uh, before, way before Freddie Gray, way before, way before George Floyd. And um, I'll, I'm happy to listen and, and share when my time is, is, is right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. So I'll come back to you. I'm going to continue with the ladies who was there. I'm going I'm to I'm circle back, okay? Queen, one second. Can you hear me, Queen? Yeah, can you hear me? Uh, Jill, I don't know if Jill was here when you posed the initial question, so it might be helpful for you to reiterate sort of the opening question that you put into the room. Um, that everyone is responding to so that Jill has full context on that. Okay. And also we've been talking. So the the question was, of course, when after COVID, we're after protests and we're existing as black lives that matter. And we're women. And I'm trying, being in Baltimore City, per Baltimore City, what can we do as women to change the paradigm or the dynamic that we're in, um, the violence we see around us, how can we change that as women? So that's really, that was a question you missed, okay? All right, got it? All right. Just Asia, jump in. Uh, so I've been taking notes, and um, for the benefit of people who came in late, I just, you know, want to say so far, what I've heard and agree with um, was building black finances, building black businesses, addressing things at a legislative level, uh, getting mental health care, working on our education system, shifting policies and shifting practices. So I want to, uh, I'll just add on to that, that I think I was on a, um, a call last week and we were talking about this whole defund the police movement. And one of the most powerful things that I heard there was that we need to reimagine these systems. So as me being an educator the system is either broken or it wasn't designed for us. And I tend to think of the latter. So we need to take this time. We have time to reimagine what an education system that looks for us, that works for us would look like. What would a justice system that works for us look like? Uh, So one example is that I was carjacked in front of my home in January of this year. And I spoke to the detective uh, and he told me at one point that they had found one of the young men or they thought they had. And I said, I want to talk to him. What does restorative justice look like? I did not have that opportunity. I wanted to look this young man in his face and talk to him about the impact that he had on me and my family. And as an educator, I know 
that restorative justice works. So I'm grateful to see that that is a practice that has uh, that the CEO of Baltimore City Schools has been focusing on is the whole child. Um, so we need more of that. We need reparations that are both financial and emotional. So I'm grateful to hear people talking about mental health. I think one of the most powerful quotes that I ever saw on Twitter, someone said, I'll make you a deal. I'll try to go get a gun and you try to get an appointment with a licensed therapist and let's see who can get one first. Wow. That should not be the case right. in America. Right. People should be have access to services that are going to deal with the trauma. So I'm really grateful to hear all of you all talking about healing. So it's, it's both healing from the past and then building for a future or simultaneously. Um, and I just want to say also, that's why this current administration is trying to get us to rush back to normal. Because what you're seeing is the manifestation of us having a little bit of time and a little bit of clarity. And when we have a little bit of time to think and to organize and to have these meetings, because we're not busy working 60 hour work weeks and trying to get things done and constantly trying to, you know, wear, wear the mask, even though we're wearing masks, um, but not wearing that mask that we have to, those of us who are in corporate America, et cetera, we have a moment to breathe, to think and to realize that what we were doing before wasn't working. So we don't want to return to normal. We want to build something new and we have an opportunity to reimagine what that's going to look like. And they're terrified of us having the time and the space to do that. So we're seeing a pushback that's saying, let's get these people back to the rat race. Yep. And we have to push back against that and say, nope, we're not going back to normal. Well, Sister Clear, I have a I have a question I'd like to ask uh, of of the panelists and of the listeners to consider. Um, what I would submit is that every institution in America was built on white supremacy ideology and capitalism. So nothing here was meant to do, to to care for us. So everything we're blatantly seeing within the law enforcement situation, the mass incarceration, what's happening in education, please help. Here's my ask. Please also add that to what's help happening in mental health. So my ask is as we talk about the needs for mental health and access, that we become more critical in what we're asking for. Because the majority of what's out here for mental health does not treat what we're ailing from. And what we're ailing from is the persistent, ongoing exposure to systemic oppression, generation after generation after generation. An example of this for me would be, when we say at-risk youth, not only does it message something to those young people, like I was an at-risk youth, thank God I did not know that until I call myself getting educated. that's an intentional word, sitting in somebody's doctoral classroom, I realized being born to a single mom of multiple, multiple fathers on, po on poverty, in, you know, welfare, survivor of sexual abuse, and I'm somebody who's at risk. Because if you told me that enough times, 
What are you saying about me? More specifically, when we look at treatment, if I say you're at risk, then the problem is you and I'm fixing you. So I want to ask us to reframe it. Our children are not at risk. They're at potential and at risk environments. If we say it that way, you have to say who's doing what to them that's driving them crazy. So this is what, so this is my ask around this issue of mental health to be more critical that it's more than how to get access, but how do we as consumers demand that mental health services meets the needs of our people? And that does mean paying attention to if this child's presenting with symptoms of ADHD, what does it have to do with systemic oppression and racism and poverty? When you look at, well, wait a minute, this is one of 35 boys in one classroom with an early career teacher. I'd come out of there bouncing too, but we keep calling him having ADHD and not realizing that these, that many of the behaviors that our people are presenting with are, are, are normal reactions to abnormal situations. You put anyone in the messes we've been sitting in long enough, they start acting a fool. And so that's what I'm trying to say. So we need mental health services that will help us reclaim our righteous minds. And you can't do that if you are not culturally affirming us, culturally congruent, and speaking to what's happening to us and not what's wrong with us. So that's my ask is that each time we talk about mental health services, please be critical and say you want the services that meets the needs of our people and treat what we're going through because otherwise we'll be dealing with symptoms, they'll learn how to sit still, but they're still in the madness of a classroom. They can't teach them because of the systemic oppression in the classroom system. Mm-hmm. Sounds to me, everything needs to, we got to reimagine, recreate. Everything. <laughs> we, we do. The system is not a, it seems like it is not a, has not a space to be fixed. <laughs> because it's not made to help us. And we are We're trying to fix something that's not even made for us. I don't understand yes. what to do. We're <laughs> so that's just medicine. The, the group that um, the sister Camilla spoke about, um, 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 Keila spoke about when she left, the, yes. the group, that is medicine. That is part of our healing. The more we come together, even doing... Even in the midst of this pandemic, I would submit to you, our tapping into the use of webinars has allowed us to have conversations in real time around yeah. the world. We're sitting with brothers and sisters in the UK, South Africa, having critical conversations. That is, those are healing because we are transmitting information. We're verifying each other's realities. We're learning from one another. That is going to help us to not need the thing that they call therapy while we're trying to understand what's optimal therapy. And I'll close by saying that there are a number of theorists within black psychology who have in fact, quote, identified the, th- the therapy, the therapy that works with us best. However, remember when I said it's only 4% of that 4%, how many are practicing black psychology? So it's a quiet kept secret in the domination of a capitalistic way of approaching treatment. So even though we have the answer, we can't get it up the boulder out there because we got folks who are being trained to be a psychologist who've never even heard of black psychology, never read what um, Wade Nobles, Naeem Akbar, Kobe Kambad, Linda James Myers, um, Cheryl Grills, you know, Daryl Rowe, all these folks who've dedicated their life to explicating what is good mental health 
the people of African ancestry who's been dealing with centuries of dehumanization and oppression that they're literally driving us crazy. Can, can I just, can I pick back on that and say that that, when I say that we have an opportunity right now, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Because the fact is, I don't need to tell you that the research and the science behind the fact that we need pro-black mental health services for black children is, is there's no question about that. The fact is we are in a, in a society and an establishment where that is not credited and people don't buy into it. And we don't buy into it because we've been taught to buy into the establishment. We've been taught if you learn this and you get good grades, you go to these schools and you go work for this place, then you're, then you're doing it. You're successful. But we have to re-envision the whole, our whole definition of success through the lens of, of, of science and research that tells us what we need to support Black people. And we have that opportunity right now if we take advantage of it. I just want to say I, I'm on the, I, well, I used to be on the board and now I'm just outside counsel to a mental health agency that I am so proud of. I'm so proud of my clients because they are doing it that way. And when, when, uh, my, when my friends and, and, and clients, uh, Chris Simon and Jada McRae said they wanted to start this mental health clinic. Um, one of the first things they said is it needs to make our clients feel like valued clients because that's what they are. Because they're going to places that look like rat infested holes in the wall that reinforce everything that society tells them about who they are, that traumatizes them further. And we're not going to do that. They're going to come into our facility and it's beautiful. And they're gonna, we're gonna treat them like the special, you know, beautiful clients who deserve to be made to feel like that. Um, and 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 they're doing it that way. And they're, Tanya, they're I'm, and Tanya, I'm sure they had some special funding for doing that because the way the system is set up, we are forever disenfranchised, right? That those who, if if our clients, for example, are are, are being funded predominantly through Medi-Cal, for example. Medi-Cal decides how services should happen, and it, pre- and it privileges individual one-to-one therapy. Yet we know, as Black healers, we know that many Black people heal in relationship to one another. So being in group or being in therapy, in family work, in spaces, that's where the healing happens. But it, we can't keep our doors open in a fully medical funded place because the, the the funding does not support that. It supports it privileges individual therapy. I'll just close with this one example: the the the, the small fee that I get for seeing one child in individual therapy. If I were to this is for the state of California. I don't know how it's happening around the world, but this is what true for Alameda County in California. If I were to see five children in group therapy, I would have to, (laughs) I would still be paid for the one hour, not five children in that one hour. And I'd still have to do the same amount of paperwork for all six of them. So it logically doesn't make sense from a business plan to provide group work because I don't have the correct return, but from a healing cultural place, it's a perfectly starting in a group way. So that's what I mean by we have to be, I, I'm really calling upon, upon the brilliance of this panel and others that need you to leverage your voices and your power 
that this thing called mental health services must also be revamped, re-envisioned so that it meets the needs of our folks. So I'll jump in, oh, I'll jump in there um, because I've been listening and just looking through the lenses um, of what I, you know, what I do every day. And um, I think about the reason why you became a researcher, especially at Hopkins, right? Um, I, I was a pre-med, you know, major, went to STEM career, did genetic engineering, all of that. Um, and I recognized that I had to start from one of the root causes of the issues that I saw, right? I'm brilliant, genetic engineer, and nobody's there. It looks like me, all kinds of things. I never felt that I belonged, right? Um, So when I went into the education system, I was immediately maladjusted because it was nothing like what I received when I was a student. I was a gifted and talented student. I was identified very early. So that self-fulfilling prophecy was a positive self-fulfilling prophecy for me. And all of the resources, and I mean, I'm going to just kind of pull off the curtain, you know, pull back the curtain a little bit. Elephant in the room always for me, especially when I'm talking to people of power, is that we give the most to people who need the least, and we give the least to people who need the most. But it's because of special interests. And so I just throw it out there. And the first, let's just start with the premise that that is the reason why we have a lot of the issues that we have. And it's because those people who have the most don't just have access. They have agency. They know how to speak truth to power. And so the reason why I became a researcher is because when I was a teacher, I was maladjusted to the system because I wanted to give every kid what I received as a student. I never did book work. I, all I did was projects. They taught me how to be a boss from day one. I came from eighth generation entrepreneur. So there were certain things that they already knew about me walking in. So they treated me differently. Although I came from the same zip code as my um, neighborhood best friend who lived across the street. We went to the same school, same doors, same funding, same state taxes, property taxes that our parents paid. Yet I was able to come out and go to the best schools, right? She didn't become who she wanted to be until my son was 15 and we had kids at the same age, you know, at the same time. So going back there, I said, well, why must I teach using these research-based practices? And when I started to just reverse engineer this process, I recognized that the practices that I was using came out of research that was 20 years old, number one. It was interpreted, that data was interpreted by white people with mad bias and they use black people as a control group. And when I say that to um, people who are not scientists, they don't understand what I'm saying. So you got funding because, you know, Baltimore was an intervention city. Y'all about to get me started. I wasn't trying to get started today. We know that Baltimore was an intervention city. We know that Hopkins and I love my school. Don't get me wrong. Hopkins gets a lot of money to do research in Baltimore. Right. I, I right. can tap into that. And the people who benefit the researchers after we know what doesn't work, they don't go back and make it right. And you don't get those practices until years and years later, because we can't even talk about the politics of publishing the research. And so the reason why I decided to go to Hopkins is because I recognize that when I publish on that name, because it's just a platform, that what I am saying will get to the journals where I needed to go very quickly. 
And I, because I've been a practitioner for 20 years in the education system before I became a researcher, I know I can run circles around most researchers because I actually have been in the context. And what we typically do is we decontextualize research-based strategies so that they work for us, us being the system. And so we just play around. And there's a book called Tinkering with Utopia that really talks about how we have been engaged in education reform for 100 years. And after 100 years, we are still where we began. And so a lot of times I see people who look like us sitting on, I sit on a lot of leadership councils at Hopkins. And until I open my mouth and say what really they're thinking, they don't say it. And until I say, well, how are we actually helping these communities? Are we just putting our stamp on something? Are we taking somebody's program? No, we need to empower. We need to lift that platform. We don't need to take over anything. And so right now I'm working with the Diversity Leadership Council, the COVID Leadership Council, and the Sustainability Leadership Council. For an entire year, I was a founding member, the entire year I've been talking about environmental justice. Every single time I opened my mouth, I don't care what the question was, what I was supposed to be saying, I went back to it. But what are we talking about when we talk about environmental justice? Why are we not talking about how particulates in the air are causing diabetes? Why are we blaming black people when they're intoxicated? You know, all of this, right? So they got tired of me talking about it. <laughs> so they finally decided that they were going to not just create a subcommittee, but we were going to put out a paper. And I said, oh, that's not good enough. How are we going to take our resources? Because they're scarce. We got all this brilliance at Hopkins. Why are we not partnering, having our scientists go in as workers in these organizations to give them the science behind what they're already doing well? And that's what I see with the nonprofits. We have nonprofits that are solving problems, but it's anecdotal. So how can we put those rigorous instrumentations behind that in the real science so that we can publish those case studies or publish that good research. And so I'll digress. Well, actually, Sister Lanisha, look, imagine this shift that all of our tools should be in the service of the community, that that's where we start from. But instead, many of our tools in our Western way, we, we, we set up research to prove the efficacy of the tool. That's a different starting point. If I start from what does the community need and how do I bring my tools to bear? So by definition, I'm privileging the community. I must ask them what they need, not tell them what they need. And then Sister Lanise, when I hear your brilliance about this publishing, I'm reminded of one of our um, elders that's transitioned, Baba Joseph White, who was he used to always tell us that he, when he saw the first black psychologist, he was looking in the mirror. Mm. Okay. And he was the first one to be, to become a clinical psychologist out of Michigan state, but my, out of university of Michigan. But my point here is what he did was his first publications was in essence magazine. when He wrote the, st- the story of black psychology. And when he was going up for tenure and they were trying to question him about not having enough publications, he said, excuse me, I know how many folks read my Essence Magazine article. How many read your, your peer review position? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Now, now mind you, he's a, he's a giant, but he was always real in it. 
So mm-hmm. I would also say, going back to your first question, that, and it goes back to what I was saying, too, about the complexities of all this. Keep doing our external work, but then also how do we ask ourselves, how do we deliver what we think we know over to the communities for their own healing and working with? And now in the literature, it talks about community-defined practices. And that's what the emotional emancipation circles are. We do not have evidence-based research on that. We can't quantify that to say it's treating racial trauma. That's not its intention. But what we have is community-defined practices that every time we train people, they want more of these emotional emancipation circles because it's activating their own self-healing. It's allowing them to change their quality of life mm-hmm. and not just their behavior. That'll work. That'll work. So let's get some some um, people who haven't spoke yet. We have a... Um small business owner, um, Kara Brown. And um, I really want her to speak and also talk about what she does because, you know, we spend a lot of money on our nails, ladies. I think it's... Okay. So can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Sorry. I had my phone down. I'm kind of slow. But um, I was saying that due to COVID, we were, we were not doing anything for like 60 days. We're, no nails, no anything for 60 days. So we slowly, gradually tried to get into it. So we now are booked, me and my team, we're now, we're now booked up until like the second or third week of July now. So every day, all day, people are calling their phones and they want to support. And I'm all for it, you know, but it's like, sometimes I'm like, okay, um, moving f- backwards, like, you know, what were we, what, what we doing before, beforehand? Like, you know, when I think of people who want to support now, I just think of it like, okay, so now they call in and they want they want appointments to get their nails done, but it's like you know you we can't service everybody, you know. So it's like a thing where though you know some people they're like, oh well, y'all don't ever have any appointments available, but then we still have our clients that we're servicing, um, that we've been servicing. So in my salon, I have myself and I have two two white employees and I have another black person who works with me. So it's like you know. When you come in a salon, if I'm not there, it kind of looks different than what it kind of appears to be. But it's Black-owned. Um, and I've trained everybody there. So I'm just saying all this to say that now we went from doing nothing to being overly booked and overly busy. And it's just overwhelming. Well, God is it good. Is. <laughs> it is. God is good. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So um, the question is, you said, where were the people before? So, yeah, because a lot of times, and this is the thing about this, a lot of times, okay, so I have this, I have a Google voice number and I can tell anybody who contacted me about an appointment, I, it goes back to 2015. Wow. So it can be a person that may have texted the phone like during COVID and they may have not came since 2015 or they may have said something that may have not been appropriate or whatever, but everybody was texting the phone um, when all the nail salons were closed. But I'm just saying, I, I made that statement, where were you at before? Because you have people who do things for convenience. Mm-hmm. And being as though we are appointment only, like we don't have anything until next week. So it's easier for someone to go to their local salon or to an Asian salon and get something done right then and there instead of waiting for their appointment. So now you have to do everything by appointment. You know, it's no walk-ins. There's no sitting beside someone waiting in the salon for an appointment. That's gone. 
Mm-hmm. You can no longer do that. You have to make an appointment for everything you do now. So when I said that, where were you at? Where were they at that time, or where were they? You know, previously, that's what I mean. Like you know, we weren't considered, and I want everybody to consider us to do good services, just not being black. Uh, being a black owned salon. I don't want anybody to come. Okay. We're a black owned salon and it's owned and operated by me, but I don't necessarily want you to come. Okay. I want to try this place because it's black owned. I just want people to try us because we do good services. Okay. But why not? Why not though? Yeah. I want to know too. Why not? Why not? Why not? Why not try? Okay. So I've been doing this for a long time now. So like for, for maybe like 20 years. So I figured it like this. If you, I will, I will per se, because most of the people who want to try you, they are not, they are, it's con- a convenience thing. They're not pre-booking. They're not, they want, like, they want, they want it right then and there. They want to, they want to get their nails done. They want their services. Walk they in. want their hair done. They want things they want right in. then and there. Right. They're not used to making an appointment to get their nails done. They're used to going, signing in, and 15 to 20 minutes is their turn. And then that's just how it goes. So what I mean by that, what I mean is that if they say they want to try you and then it's like, okay, you want to try me because we're a black on salon. And then they'd be like, oh no, it's like the time frame isn't good enough for them. For some people. I want to ask you to maybe consider looking at it through a different lens. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is because of social situations, Many black people have been accustomed to walk in. They have not been exposed to the benefits and the privilege and the luxury of having a scheduled appointment. And then there's the flip side too. There's some times when they are scheduled and the service provider is so overwhelmed, they're always late, right? So there's situations that can, that can lead into that. Mm-hmm. What I would submit to you once again is how do we allow our folk to get used to, accustomed to, work with, experience different ways of being where you may see a shift. And then, and then for me, this question of, of why Black-owned or not, I want to honor what I think I hear you saying, that you're good at what you do regardless of who you are. You're absolutely yes. right. You're good at what you do. Yes. And yet, I want to ask you to step back. After living on the West Coast and in Seattle and other places as a black woman, I've been in so many places that where I live, no one can service me who looks like me. And I've got to drive five minutes to an hour to get to a black hair salon or nail. So, so we have to understand there's differences of experiences. Here on the East Coast, there's, you're more likely to bump into a variety of Black-owned businesses. But the further across you go, the least they are. So there should be an intentionality of finding good quality black on business services. So the more we do it, we can get to a place where there's so many of you that are so successful that you won't have to go looking for black. You're just there. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. That that I nobody's gonna come to me like people will come to me because they they're like, oh, you know, Tanya's an employment and she's a person of color, but but they're not gonna refer people to me and keep coming to me if I'm not good. I don't care why someone comes to me. And I feel like 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 loving and prioritizing black people is something that we've been taught to feel self-conscious about. 
And we yeah. shouldn't, because let yeah. me tell you something. White people are not. They don't. They do it all the time. They do it they all the time. They their kids yeah. in schools they don't deserve to be in. I'm at Harvard feeling self-conscious, like I don't belong here. My ass belonged there, okay? <laughs> Who didn't belong there is Donald Trump. He didn't, he didn't belong there. He paid for yeah. to take his SAT. I took my test, okay? So we have to let go of that. Because yes. all these things that we have been taught and have been do- indoctrinated in us have been designed to perpetuate white supremacy. And we have yes. to dismantle it. We have to be okay with referring each other to each other and prioritizing each other. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. You know what? If we mess up, then lovingly tell us how to be better and give mm-hmm. us a chance. Don't write us off because we have a bad day. Because you know what? White people have bad days all the time and they get two, three, four chances. Yep. They do. I have people come to me all the time who ask me to give them a discount. And I'm talking about people of color who come to me ask me to give them a discount. I don't give a discount because I'm better than everybody else. I deserve to be compensated fairly for what I do. Yes. Not feel so conscious about bragging right. about how good we are. Because yeah, a lot get- of people aren't going to do it for us. We're not going to get the awards that the biggest law firm in Maryland gets when I beat them. You know, mm. like all these people, like all those awards and all the things that 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 validate who is the best, they're paid for. They're bought and paid for by big firms with big resources and big companies with deep pockets. We're not going to get that stuff. So we have to get it, you know, by earning it. And we don't we shouldn't worry about that. We that's not what defines who is the best and you know No, but what I meant what I meant what I meant was is that okay, I think, you know, for myself and my salon, I I think we we are the best at what we do. But I just don't want you to choose. I just don't want anyone to choose us because we're thinking like, you know, you have you don't have options. I mean, that's what I mean. I don't want you just like to choose us because you know, it's a Black-owned business. So that's what I mean. I don't want you just like, okay, well, let me choose them because they're, they're a Black-owned business. Y'all saying, why not? But it's just like, you know, it's, for me, it's like, you know, I put, it's like, you know, you put all of what you do and then sometimes it can be, we, as a people, sometimes we can be very critical and we can I criticize. Want, and I think that I, I want to honor, I was going to say, I want to honor your position, right? Because again, we have to be able to hold both of these here. I want to honor your position and I want to introduce this other space, which is there is something extremely healthy about being intentional to seek out black, Mm -hmm. good black, because it pushes back on the story. We're constantly being told in multiple ways. We're not good enough. You got here because of affirmative action. You weren't worthy. Someone gave you that small business dollars because they wanted to alleviate their white guilt. So you got a small little loan. There's all these messages out here that, 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 that our children are getting before they learn to talk. So they desperately need to see good black in front of them. I need my daughter to grow up watching me among my sister friends in a black nail salon. Mm -hmm. That's how she will learn the grooves, the messaging of her blackness and the beauty of her femininity when she steps into a Harvard when it doesn't mirror that back to her. She's not going to get that sitting in a predominantly white 
hair. She'll get a, she may get a good hairstyle. I don't know. But that's less of the issue. Being in the genius of Black, I'll close by saying I used to be very uncomfortable with referring to myself as Dr. Jackson because of all that messaging that women get around, you know, you're not that good, you're not this, whatever the issues may be. Until my Black community taught me that this Dr. Jackson does not belong to me. It belongs to my community because for many of them, for many of the youth I saw, they had been seen by multiple, quote, mental health practitioners, and I'm the first one they saw that was Black. And so they never even see themselves doing this. So I want to invite you to consider a both and here. If there is a beautiful intentionality to see Blackness and seek out Blackness, and, and, and I want to underscore what Sister Tanya said. We can make a mistake and it needs to be all right. But instead, we are the worst critics with one another. We would rather bump heads working with someone who doesn't look like us, who will treat us less like my, my husband told me to stop cursing in public. So <laughs> who will treat us in a way. We'll keep going back to that one. Mm-hmm. A sister friend, a brother friend, or somebody who mm-hmm. makes a mistake, we're writing them off. Mm-hmm. That? That's internalized racism. We are buying into their messages. Yes, yes, yes. But I don't yeah. so, one second, one second. Because uh, we got Jill Carter hiding in this corner. So, Jill, I need you to jump in and say something. Talk to us. I know. It's been, so, listen, I was thinking I should have taken my shot when you gave it to me. But <laughs> yep. when I didn't know uh, what all had been said or what the question was. So many things have been said, and I have a lot I could, I, I think I could add. Um, one of the things that is so critical about this moment is there is one area of our, our experience where we... I think it's the biggest room. We have the biggest room for improvement. Somehow when we talk about the intersectionality of all of our experience when it comes to um, raceogeny, which is racism and misogyny that we all deal with, we leave out politics. We, we reduce it to did we vote? We reduce it to Trump and, and Democrats. But many of you have talked about the rage that we feel because of the systems that have fallen short. And the truth is, even though Sister Lenise talked about it's not about the laws, it's about the implementation, but I, 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 to some extent, but you got to have the law first. You got to have the foundation first. And every single subject that I've listened to each person articulate from education equity, and I think Sister Harris, Kalila Harris left, who's, you know, my, my go-to expert on education equity. Um, I want to talk about the Maryland General Assembly because many people know about the blueprint for Maryland's future, for example, which was the big issue for education this year. But that bill, the blueprint that um, Hogan vetoed, that the Democrats pushed, did not focus on education equity. In fact, we were on the floor on Sonny Die arguing this point, just me and one other person, Senator Mary Washington the only other black um, woman senator from Baltimore besides me. Um, the issue and the problem and what I struggle with and, and really need for us to figure out how to connect on is when we're in these discussions, what you call the back room, it is some of it is the back room, but some of it is simple like open public hearings on legislation and contacting legislators and holding them accountable, as I've heard. And we're very much absent. We are absent. The special interests are there. 
the special interests are paying for the elected officials. And there's this great disconnect between who's really funding and guiding and steering and influence the elected officials versus us who may vote because he or she came to our block party, our community meeting, they went to school with your sister. Okay, our reasons for voting and supporting elected officials are inadequate. And that is why we have the systems that we have now. And so since George Floyd, for example, and, and you know, I never win any popularity contest um, with politicians when I talk the truth, which I always do. You know, the legislature, the, the new uh, black woman speaker of the house, Adrian Jones, and has been vocal now about um, wanting to do police reform since George Floyd. But what is significant is this. Uh, we've had 130 people killed by law enforcement since 2015, since Freddie Gray. And she's well aware of that, or should be. Some of them happened in her own district. So I'm not taking anything away because we never want to like hurt people because now they're suddenly, as Dr. Jackson described, woke. But we have to look at things in the right context. Where was she before? Not just her, all of them. Where are these people before? These issues didn't start. They didn't start with Freddie Gray. They started a long time ago. Education equity is not a new thing. It didn't happen with Kerwin. I was around all the way back in the day, if some of you remember the Bradford case. The Bradford case then started the Thornton formula, and that was supposed to be the thing to fix everything. Why are these things happening? We feel like there's this giant living in the sky that we can't quite figure out why our, our views are not matching up with the policies that are coming down. I'm here to tell you because the same structure of white supremacy, the same racism and misogynist system that exists in all aspects of our life exists in politics too. And I don't care if you now have an Adrian Jones as the Speaker of the House. She's not funded by us. That's not who gave her her campaign financing. She's not led by us. Her chief of staff is not a, 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 a black person speaking to her through a racial equity lens. And so she's not capable of doing better than what she does unless we step up. It is time for we black women who are the backbone of everything in this world to step up and guide our politicians and become greater influencers with the politicians. We are not influential enough. We are, we are dependent on by the Democrats to deliver the vote every place in this country every place in this country. But when it comes to how the Democrats are then serving our families, serving our black children, they fall short. We put them first and they put us last. And it's time for us to stop doing that. It's time for us to be more serious and more intentional about not just who we vote for, but how we hold them accountable. And we have to do it by better communication and coordination. Um, and so really quickly, because I know I'm kind of talking long and I'll stop for a while. One of the things I want to stress, and I do this with every forum that I'm a part of, is one of the things I'm going to ask, because somebody brought up Asia, I think you said, you saw on Twitter, your best quote on Twitter, which I think is funny. Twitter happens to be my favorite platform for social media. Uh, we need to connect with each other on our social media platforms and offer that support that way. Also, it's a way to, one, be informed about what other people are working on and promoting and also give the support. So we need to, to all get each other's Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, whatever, 
and connect with each other, make sure that we follow and support, stay in touch. And especially I would say when it comes to me, because I'm always posting about legislative initiatives, plans and proposals, and informing about hearings that are coming up and all of those things is really important. So briefly, for example, the Senate of Maryland is going to hold public hearings for two weeks in September on our police reform legislation. And that is where everybody needs to be present because the plan is to hold these hearings and then be prepared to take votes on this legislation the first week of January. Um, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's an out of the usual chronology because normally we would just wait until January. Um, those are the kinds of things that are important. We need to, I would, I would encourage people to connect with not just me, I'm not the only one, you know, me, Senator Mary Washington, uh, Delegate Stephanie Smith. I'm, I'm not naming everybody though. I'm naming the people that I think are the ones that can offer some guidance and some authenticity um, in the process. Because just because someone is one of us does not mean they are with us. And so black people, and I think somebody else talked about this, you talked about the boards that you're on, you know, and, and whatever. I mean, it's the case with politics too. The ones that are fighting for us the hardest are not getting elevated to the position of Speaker of the House, period. It's not happening. We don't have any black women that are, um, oh yeah, we do one, I'm sorry. We have one black woman in the state Senate that is a chair of a committee. I happen to be the only black woman Senator uh, attorney in the state Senate. For many years, I was the only one in the House of Delegates. This is significant because um, there was very much and continues to be somewhat of an effort to, um, because, because very few debates, Tanya, I know you can re relate to this, because I can't be defeated very frequently in a, a debate, the solution is to keep me from debate, to silence me, to, to not bring my bills to a vote so there is no discussion, so it's never to the floor. Those are the kinds of things that, that generally we don't know because we aren't paying that close attention and we don't have elected officials that are really willing to talk honestly about it. Because why? Because if they're in the House of Delegates, they can't say anything against the leadership or I'll be punished. If they're in the Senate, they can't say anything against the leadership, they'll be punished. But, you know, I'm a little different. I don't want to be punished either, but I, I think it's more important to speak the truth and be the human being that I am first and the black woman that I am first, um, you know, before putting political interest ahead of that. So I just want to encourage us to pay attention to the politics. Environmental justice, you brought that up too, Lenine. Um, The reason that we have lead poisoning is none other than the political will has never been there to end it. Now, if we, the black women, stepped up, if we stepped in and we made this demand, it would have happened before and it will happen when we do it. Okay, we have really been absent from these arenas. And that's all that I'll say for now, but please, uh, Queen, make sure that we connect on the social media to continue the conversation and the support. Absolutely. Yeah, and the support. Mary Washington. <laughs> Are you like Mary Washington? Okay. So <laughs> I want to um, kind of ask you a question, Joe, because you talk about politics and it's hard for people who are suffering with unresolved trauma even think past because when they vote it's really for who is the most popular i'm not sure if we're actually vetting these candidates so you say that part of what black women can do is coalesce and 
and back candidates. But we have so much trauma and so many other things. Is that going to, is that something realistic for someone who's really suffering? Can they do both? And that's the truth. Can they, can you do suffering and think about who to vote for and bet them? Well, because I do believe in black girl magic and that black women can do anything, I'm going to have to say yes. All right. That's what I wanted to hear. It's it's the job of those of us who are not Mm -hmm. in the middle of the trauma at the moment to lift our sisters up and pull them along, to be those guides and be those leaders and those influencers for them. And so what I'm saying is that we, our generation in particular, must do a better job um, starting now, starting with connecting with your own elected official, starting with connecting with Black women that are strongest right now in these places. Um, There are some strong ones and there are some other ones. And the, the, the problem that I've seen over the years is one, we don't know the difference, and and because we don't know the difference, we can't figure out who. So we don't support, we don't give the support to the ones that we could help lift up to carry the right agenda. Um, and so they oftentimes either wind up not successful or leave politics or just get co-opted. Because it's just easier to be co-opted. You know, Jill, we do we do know who the we do know who the right ones are. We do. Like I, I like so with the mayor's race in Baltimore City. Like, like my husband and I moved from the county to the city because we want to be part of building Baltimore because we don't have kids. So like we really like it sounds corny, but like the children of Baltimore are our kids. We want to invest in making Baltimore better. And when we were researching the candidates, the mayoral candidates, I went to high school with Saru Vignarajah. Like he was like a year or two behind me, and I feel like he kind of stole my bio, but that's another story. And I reached out. I was like, "Can somebody tell me is he legit? Because he says all the right things, but yep. like I'm reaching out to people who knew him back in the day, is he real or not? Is he down for what he's saying or not? And nobody vouched for him, and that told me everything that I needed to know. If you if you talk to people who knew me when I was ten, they're gonna tell you that I have always prioritize black people because my mother taught me to do that. And, mm. and and it's always been a guiding principle of everything that I have done. And I think that's what we have to do. Like we have to talk. We have to have these communications so that we are sharing this information with each other. And Jill, you need to tell us what do we need to do to yep. make sure the right people are getting the support. Like exactly. how do we do that? How do we how do we take all like everybody knows that we are the most consistent voters. We like the Democrats can't win without us, but they take us for granted every every time. So how do we take that consistency and that recognition and turn it into power in a meaningful way for you to help us get the kinds of legislation we need to make lives better for black people in Maryland? Period. Yes. How do we do it? How do we do it? I say ongoing dialogue between different groups and the elected people that represent us in these areas. I'm going to always start, like I said, ongoing dialogues with different groups. Myself, Senator Mary Washington, the only black women senators from Baltimore. Um, the Some members of the House that I think are very strong as well. Stephanie Smith is the one that comes to mind the most. Um, that the, the ongoing communication and dialogue. Um, there's so many issues all the time. It's hard to like, I, you know, I focus on what is my bandwidth can't handle everything. Um, Dr. Jackson, when you talked about the funding, I mean, you know, people debate and don't agree with the concept of Medicare for all, but I can tell you 
that the Medicare for All umbrella is a way to make sure that mental health services and all health care is affordable to everyone. This is a policy that's not even embraced by the Democrats. And I think because it's so shunned, it's so non-mainstream, that even we Black people, who it probably would help the most, don't even entertain it because we're still stuck on some narrative about we want... Uh, we still believe in having it tied to our employment, even though we see our employment can be wiped away in a, in a, in a drop yeah. of employment. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, and, and finally, can, can I just say one other quick? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said this is off subject a little bit, but I, I thought about like an hour ago. Um, thank you for reminding me of my shiro, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, who yes. never ever uh, forget, who is the first person that, you know, you do it more beautifully because I'm not a mental health professional, but we're psychiatrists, anything like that, but um, who is the first person that made me understand that any practice of psychology or psychiatry or mental health services has got to be tied to our experience and our profession. Yes. And I, 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 what I was going to say, too, is I was listening to the exchange between you and Tanya with the question that the Sister Queen posed. So I want to articulate this as a very clear, another action item, is that when our learned officials like yourself are vetting in the level of knowledge that you have, and when we think about our sisters who are still sitting in acute trauma, where they, it's not that they don't have the capacity, they just don't have the space. It's mm. bandwidth. You're, if you're dealing with, you're holding a lot. You don't have the literal space and time to pick up and educate yourself about some of the candidates. So there is another aspect in here for you, which what you're doing is how do you come back and translate what you know in a way that the community can hear it? Because we're speaking multiple languages across the board. We still got we still got a switch code, right? There's one way we talk on the floor. But then how do you translate what you talk on the floor to the barbershop, to the hair salon, to the nail top, to, to the classroom, so that we all understand it in our own way and make that informed yeah. decision around voting? Yeah, that, that's a great point. The ongoing dialogue, and one, one more quick thing. So it also is depending, you know, I believe that because we've had less than we deserve for so long, we know we have we have lowered our expectations so for example and you may or may not agree with me one of the things that's got me infuriated right now is the fact that we have we have blatant and overt racial discrimination that was shown to us downtown in the atlas restaurant which is far from the only one but where i my i took the the position of calling for a boycott because I think you begin at a place of strength with saying you got to get out, then, you know, you could possibly, you know, change that position, but you don't start a conversation with let's have a conversation with a racist. So, but the city council, for example, right now, led by the next mayor, Brandon Scott, they passed a resolution this week that the resolution was that the solution in their mind is to eliminate dress codes. They took the issue, the, the, the huge issue that we need to address in this city that stems from the old policies of segregation, segregated Baltimore, into the current discrimination, and they reduced it to a damn drug issue. That is not acceptable. And so we wonder, that's a class, perfect example of how politics yep. and politicians are not representing us. Yep. 
that's so true. That is so true. And that to bring context to that, the Atlas restaurant um, discriminated against a black kid and a white kid was already in the restaurant. He, they had the same things on, right? Am I clear about that's what happened at the Atlas restaurant, Sister Jill? Yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. A slew of additional stories have come out from everybody, from a former NFL player to another uh, athlete to me and, 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 and employees there and musicians, like a whole bunch of other people are chiming in. There's very little question that this racism is from the top down yeah. and is pervasive. No question. They need to be removed then. We need, we need to we work need on it, definitely. Yeah, what if all the black women got together in the city and said, you got to get out? If you got to go. You gotta go. Wait, you gotta go. Sister Lenise, she was trying to get in. Let's get let's, let's Sister Lenise in. Let's get her in. Go ahead. In. I forgot. My point was it was back <laughs> twenty five minutes ago. But, um, as I you talked about uh, trauma uh, mm-hmm. around politicians, and I will be honest, I am very turned off by politicians as a whole. I do vote and I do research, um, but I have been. I'll give you a good experience. I mean, a good example. I have been in one of those hearings, and let me just put it out on the table. Um, back in last September, I was in a really bad accident. Um, someone ran into me on in Sedonia. I um, waited for it was during. Well, it was a little hot, but I was in an unsafe area. But because it was a hit and run. I had to wait for the police to come. I called the police. Police did not come for 97 minutes. The police did not come until I called and tweeted Jack and Brandon. And the police, multiple police officers rode by me and my son. There were crazy things going on in that neighborhood at that time. And it wasn't, um, it was a white couple who came out to try to help me move my car, all of those things. I'm saying all that to say that I immediately um, got on the phone, you know, with Brandon. And I said, Brandon, I've known you for a long time. We go way back. This system is so broken that police officers saw me with my car so messed up. It was actually my son's car. It was a, my son had a little Honda Civic and a big Dodge pickup truck real steel, old one, hit us so hard. And I said, all these police officers went right past me. I had already put in three calls. As soon as I called and tweeted you, you tried to defuse the situation because I didn't want to put it out on social media because I don't like to be, you know, negative. And that wasn't even negative. So then let me just, so he said, no problem. I said, I need to be in your office tomorrow. I, I study problems through the ecological systems theory. We can talk about what, you know, dismantle what's going on in the system and how it impacted me and everything that happened along the way and how that was trauma, right? So I was supposed to be in his office. He sends me to his public relations person. And so I said, okay, I need to speak with Brandon. I can go down to his office. So then his public relations person was the person that was acting as a liaison between me and him when I just wanted a conversation so he could explain to me what was going on that day that made it so that I could not receive the services that I pay for. And I'm highly intelligent. I I knew how to advocate for myself. I knew exactly what I needed to do on Twitter and everywhere else 
to get that response immediately. So then I see Brandon at, um, I'm in the School of Education, so we had a, a race and justice um, symposium. I think you were there too, Jill. So I see Brandon. He walks in right uh, past me to go into our grand hall at Hopkins. Who did, I said, Brandon, interesting. Weren't we supposed to have a conversation? Who's behind him? His public relations for, oh my gosh, Miss Stevenson, we were supposed to get you in. And I'm like, I know this dude. Like, are you kidding me? So then, still didn't have a conversation with him. I go to the uh, Park Heights event where they were bringing the two Park Heights together, the community event. He's there. Same thing. We need to have a conversation, bro. Oh, here's his public relations for, I don't have time to play those games that all Ways happen with politics. And that is the reason why. And when I say always, I'm talking about every single experience I've had. Now, I could have called my cousin who could have gotten me that meeting with whomever. But I don't I should not feel that you should see me at Hopkins and treat me differently because he did at that moment. I have a whole issue with how black people treat each other in elite white spaces and other spaces. Yes. That's from my experience. And so I have no tolerance for the lottie die and I got to go to this meeting. If I need to speak with you and I have research or a solution, I shouldn't have to play your game to help you. I don't have, I just don't have time for that, that part of it. Cause I could be spending time with my son. All I wanted to do was help him to understand the experience so that he could dismantle it so he could parse it out. And what I found out is that there are certain people that align themselves with him that he goes to that don't know a damn thing about what they're talking about. So I'm going I'm to just digress there because that, that really bothers me that politicians often don't surround themselves with people who could help them. And you talked about this, uh, Jill, who could actually guide them in a good way. They have yes people. I'm just so done with it. And so why do I have to vote for people? Because that's all the candidates that are there. It's often not the people who I actually want because they don't represent the special interest. So they're not going to have the dollars that they need to even get to the point where they're a viable candidate. Those are the issues that I have. Well, the fair issues. Welcome to that. Yeah. But so, can I, may I say something? I won't be long, but briefly, okay. things I want to say on that. So one of the things that I work to do, and, and I guess, you know, everybody has their own style. Um, you, you, know, you catch everybody's human, you catch people in different situations. If you catch me like at a forum and I'm about to go up to the microphone, I may not be, um, I may be short because I'm like, I got to do this. I'll catch you later. You know? So people are human and I can't speak to Brandon in that situation. The only other thing I'll say is this. I definitely try to always be, um, responsive to people. But when people come to me with specific issues, many, many times, it's just like any other business. It's just like, you know, any other business that you're in. Because I'm doing a hundred things. It that's the reason that I have a staff and a legislative director and a secretary is because I want them to make sure that people get dealt with. So I'm also going to say, okay, um, let me hear the situation, but then in terms of if it's like uh, making sure we write a letter to the, the, the health commissioner or whatever. I'm not going to be the one to, to walk from beginning to end because if I did that, I would never get have time to do anything else. So, I mean, I think that, you know, because you knew him, you probably thought he should act differently. And the final thing I'm going to say, because I don't want to talk badly about the next mayor, but I mean, <laughs> first of all, you know, 
look at who you want to support, you've got, we've got to look at what they've done and who is backing them. And Brandon, I'm not going to say anything good or bad about him, but his true story is he came out of college. He worked for Stephanie Rawlings Blake. Yep. Machine and Stephanie Rawlings Blake Machine funded him in his first city council race. He was yep. and backed by that white establishment. And yep. that is how he got where he got today. He has never had to fight on his own. He has never represented the interest of black people ever. Yep. He's still taking guidance from some of those people that are in that circle. And that's the truth. And so these are the kind of things that we don't want to see because we like him or we want him to represent something new and good and different. But truth is the truth. But we have an opportunity right now to do better. Like we, we, we have like Brandon hasn't t- even taken office yet. And I, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with anything that you said, Joe. I agree with everything you said, but we have like, he has an opportunity to benefit from the wisdom and counsel of other folks. And I would encourage him to do that. When I look at Kathy, and I know people have mixed views on that, but in my heart, I know that if she had gone and hired Warren Brown or Ken Ravenel, she might have had a different outcome, but she she bought into the establishment and she did what everybody before her did. Like, and, and that's what we like, we have to empower each other to be ourselves and be better and take a different approach. And I, I will disagree in, in saying that I don't think that Lanise like ex- like I don't think she expected special treatment or like for Brandon to be responsive because she knows him. She gave him multiple chances to just yeah, be responsive. He was trying to help him be better, and he and he was relying on people who led him astray. Shame the fuck on him. Shame on him. Right. I ain't trying to make excuses for the brother. I was just trying to explain. His- <laughs> no, because- <laughs> Not exactly that situation, but it happens to me. It happens to all of us. That you may catch me on a certain day, and, and you may not get the this, you know. It, but if you got three, Jill, I know if you got three chances to be responsive to a constituent, you would probably only take two. If somebody calls you on a bad especially day, especially if you try to be the mayor, I'm just I'm just saying. I, like, I'm, and full disclosure, I'm a supporter of Jill's. I think that she's amazing, and I think you know she's the most progressive voice in local government, and that we should all be supporting her. So like, I, I want to be clear about that, but. I, I know in my heart that if two two interactions, you would be responsive to someone. And Brand, I'm not. I think Brandon's heart and, and is in the right place, but he needs to be better. He needs to be better yeah, because we, we, can, we, we don't treat black women like women. Like we don't get the same respect. If there was a white woman on the side of the road in peril, there would be four officers there protecting her. That's not okay, right. Maybe we can give him a come to Jesus moment between now and November because it's not a done deal. Come to Jesus. It really is how do we hold each other accountable in this loving way? Yes. Expect them to do the right thing. I would say let's have a behind the scenes conversation and then it can be coming to Jesus. Because the other thing that, that sometimes we get set up to do is to do the work of the other by destroying one another. Mm-hmm. And they and because if we make this in that public form, then they get to take the narrative and control it. Mm-hmm. But there is something to be said as a consumer, as a as a constituent that I want to meet in your office, hold you accountable, and how you're going to do more better moving forward. 
So I, I again, I want to sit in both places. We should expect better of one another and we should lovingly hold each other to task to that. Because again, some of this is slipping back into drinking the Kool-Aid and forgetting who you is and who yep. you belong to. All day. You really had to unfaith that though. So it's, it's, it's not unusual to me that he would not get it now. He's never been held to account for that in his past. And we, and that's our fault as a village. Right? Then how how did you let him name Gitsy Schleifer um, a, a, a Shamra member as head of the Public Safety Committee for Baltimore City, and that went unchallenged. When yeah. supported a 27-year-old white man who moved into the 41st District to take the Senate seat and endorsed him, even in the midst of racist attacks against me, nobody held him accountable for that. That wasn't about me. That was about him attempting to dilute black power, black voting, mm. that's inexcusable. And mm. he said that's anything. Can, can we talk about, I mean, you really want to be- The mayor is on, That we do that to ourselves? Like, do you really, like, I mean, if we're going to be real, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I don't think that a lot of us, and I don't like to even put us all in, in any kind of bucket and then say something negative. Yeah. I think- that well i have had moments when i could have in behind closed doors agree disagreed with black values right i think it starts there that everybody else in the room thinks one way it's a group think you're the only one that's a divergent thinker but you know that you're standing on your good values and you have to think am i willing to take the political risk as jill talked about which is very true and be threatened by not being able to have a voice here, not being, you know, you're the only one, and then you may not have a voice if you say this. So you are always trying to balance um, your power and privilege and your platform to make sure that there is someone that has a voice. I don't give a damn about any of that because I want to, I'm always an asset that they still need me to be there. But I think that we don't really talk about that part, that we are infiltrating systems of oppression and we're trying to shift them and we're still marginalizing that process. And so how do you keenly navigate that system so that you can have social justice reform, educational justice reform, all while keeping your values and representing marginalized people as a marginalized person? I think that is a very challenging um, experience. It is. It is. That's we a great step question. Into our power and use it wisely. It goes back to saying before, how do we create a black collective? How do we galvanize ourselves? We are not, we are not all of the same. We have different perspectives. Um, if we are firstborn immigrants, migrants, whatever, it, or those who are direct descendants of those who were first enslaved here, we are very diverse people. However, we must find our central glue with our African spiritness, and then mm-hmm. we are looking out for the goodness of our blackness, and let that keep us together while we hold these different perspectives, because that's what they do. I mean, we, we see that. 
Yeah. They're, they're opening doors for one another 24-7, creating internships when none existed, creating jobs that didn't exist anymore. Could care less about if it's their mother, brother, whoever they got a job. They, they have a way to protect all that. However, we keep playing chess when someone else is playing. We, we, we keep playing checkers when someone else is playing chess. We must be looking out for one another. We must be trying to load up, divvy up, block up. In fact, you know, we have to. We have to. We have Otherwise, to. we are, we're being picked off one at a time or we're being left to be exhausted, which is what Sister Lanise is talking about, sitting in there like you're, like you're pushing this boulder all by yourself or we're, or we're being pitted one against the other. Like we're all supposed to be privileged for sitting at a seat. Absolutely. Absolutely. one at that seat. When we, when we, we should own every seat in the room. That's the truth. That's the truth. Asia, let me ask you, because they said something that was amazing. Well, you know, excuse me, Lenise said something. She said that it's hard being a marginalized person and being able to speak up. And you are working in a Black institution. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to Coppin State, um, is that the same experience, even though Coppin State is a part of the University of Maryland system? Um, and it's still in a white system, but it's considered to be HBCU. Do you still have the challenges? as with implementation and things for black students and black people? No. no? <laughs> the short answer is no. And that okay. is why I love working at an HBCU. And that's why they are so necessary, in my opinion. Uh, I went to an HBCU for my undergrad. And not only did I go to an HBCU, I went to the HBCU because I was in the Morgan State University. It must be Morgan State University. Did you say no. the, that got <laughs> Morgan? I don't know what you're talking about. That got to be Morgan Atlanta University. Um, <laughs> the reason why, and I love them all. I love them all. But Clark okay. Atlanta, because that, that Atlanta University system allowed mm-hmm. us, because there were four of us, we had more houses. We had Morris Brown. We had Spellman. We had Clark Atlanta. We had, I'm sorry, ITC. There were five of us, blocks and blocks of blackness. Wow. And we could go weeks without seeing a white person. Now, mm. I'll still tell you, you go up to the third floor of a certain building, you would find white people in the financial department. So, you know, there, there, was, some, there was some around. Watching the money. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some at Coppin as well. But it is a completely different ballgame than when, for example, I spent five years in Baltimore City Public School System. That was a, I kind of got to wear a mask. You know, even in majority black schools, even in schools with black principals, because they've been so indoctrinated into Mm. that system that Lanise was talking about earlier. Um, So, no, it's a different ballgame. At, at Coppin, and I'm so grateful. This was my first year there, and I've been trying to get in uh, for a few years, and it just hasn't worked out. So I'm really, really grateful for the work that I get to do there. And while I'm here, one other thing I wanted to say when we were talking earlier about uh, trauma and whether women can, um, or Black women can even have the headspace, as my sister always talks about headspace, mm-hmm. to get into politics. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that I find incredibly helpful 
uh, as someone who, you know, has some depression, depression in their family. Most of my friends who are intelligent have depression because the world can be depressing. What is helpful is to be empowered in knowing that you can be a part of the solution. So I find that healing and I find that my friends find it healing when we find some political cause that we can get behind, um, some way to empower ourselves to be a part of the solution. I find myself saying several times a week, I'm so grateful to be an educator right now. Mm. Because that is part of the solution. A lot of the problems that we're seeing in the world are simply a result of ignorance or poor education or miseducation. I'm seeing a lot of a a lack of empathy, a lack of listening. I theater. So those are skills that I like literally teach active listening. And I teach empathy and I teach people how to put themselves in someone else's shoes. You know, and to be able to do that, once again, just to wrap up your question, to be able to do that in a black space without the white gaze is imperative. It's so important that we protect those spaces and that we have that time to develop. Most of the people I know who went to HBCUs, we have a different level of self-esteem. That's the truth. Right. That's the truth. Right. That's the truth. I'm a product of an HBCU, and I can, I can second that. That that black space. You you? Which, which which HBCU? I, I, I'm the real Morgan. University, sister. You need to know that. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> Morgan State University. But you know, being a product, I understand what she's saying. That that space has to be protected because but it's under threat. This it's under threat. threat. And it's young under people threat. Going to the, yeah, because it's such an a threat because young people, when I went into that space, I was so immature. And I saw all of this blackness. And the area around Morgan is black. And the teachers are black. It made me coming, well, I started in New York, but we, I came from South Carolina. It, it kind of made me feel like I was special. Like we're, all of these black people everywhere. They were, and it, it was amazing. And, and then... The, um, the environment is culturally sensitive. The people understand you. It's important. We need to tell this to our children. We keep sending our children to other schools. We need to really look at these HBCUs. I'm not saying they have to be for masters and PhDs, because I know you guys are big girls. But we're talking about, for undergrad, I really think it is so important for young Black students to, to experience a Black experience in a school, because the, the curriculum is still white-based, let's be clear. Um, they get money from the state, but the environment, the, 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 lo- the love that you're getting are from Black people, and I think it's so important while you're growing as into an adult. So I we got to... Go because I did start at Morgan. Oh, good they only the best, but I went to Western too, so um, <laughs> I think that the imperative came from Morgan. I say, I don't care all the schools I've gone to, and most of them have been elite white other than that. I got my best education at Morgan because I earned every single grade, every single everything. And yes. they expected nothing but the best. And I was given what I thought was my best. They made me elevated to a whole nother level so that whenever I went somewhere else, 
I've represented them. Absolutely. And Absolutely. even now, you know, I, I just attribute that my son is more housebound. Because <laughs> um, right. I wanted him to take his brilliance to HBCU because there's something, like you said, magical it's that happens. Magical. Yeah. My son, is he's been around Morehouse men for some time now, and he always talks about, Mom, they're just they're just amazing. Like, they're just so smart. And it's really because, even though he comes from a good family, to be in the midst, you're, you're actually seeing someone that's not your family that is excellent. Because on TV, that's not what they're showing him. You know, right. on whatever he's um, engaged in. It's very, sure. very hard to see those uh, narratives. Right. But, but, but Queen, I want to I go back to something you said and, and, and ask permission to expand it. And, oh. and what I, I would say, please, please do not underestimate the importance of an HBCU at the doctorate level as well. Because what I'm saying is, and, and this is real, so coming through Howard University as an undergrad, and then I did my master's there. First of all, I did not realize what I was being inoculated with as I'm studying psychology. I'm getting what, what my white counterpart would get in the PWI, but I'm getting it in a critical, course, thinking way that my, that my black scholars, are, their theories are also showing up in black psychology. Now, when I finished my doctorate in, at the Wright Institute in California, and let's be clear, they did a good job as a PWI, but all of a sudden... I'm feeling like, wait a minute, something's missing here for me. I'm feeling inadequate because what they're now teaching me does not line up with what I know. This example of, well, you know, um, culturally, black children like to keep their coats on in school and droop their pants. I'm thinking to myself, where'd that come from? And so it's the miseducation is real. So Mm. They're sending these clinician minds out here thinking that that's a cultural value. And I can't think of any mama who would say that. That's true. And because it's a power position, it's not coming to me as a question. It's coming to me as a fact backed up by their research. Mm. So, and so therefore I had to, the miseducation of the Negro. So I'm having to continue with my doctorate program, but then I'm finding the Bay Area chapter for the Association of Black Psychologists so I can sit with Wade Nobles and others and be exposed and interrogate black psychology along with this Western thing so I don't lose my mind. So that is what's at risk. That's what's at risk if all of our black minds are being socialized in PWIs that do not know us, do not represent us, and intentionally misrepresent us. And then I'll close by saying one of my biggest things happened for me. I've been in, I was I was in the Bay Area for a good thirty plus years. I've only moved back here in the last year and a half. I cannot tell you to this day. Every time I go up Georgia Avenue, I start to cry. My heart beats heavy because I'm looking. I'm like my HBCU is full of whiteness. And you're arguing about your right to walk your dog across my campus and poop. Yeah. So we are under attack. And and also, if you get it twisted, it plays itself out in terms of internalized racism again. We have genius black minds saying, why don't you go to an HBCU? I'm better than that. I'm good enough to go to. That's all twisted. We're forgetting the reason. There's a reason for not only black safe space, but direct access to black genius. Mm. 
Mm. We need them both. That's power. That's so power. really quickly, can I just tie this into politics real quick? Of course, Jill. You tie all probably know our HBCUs are under attack and that after more than a decade of a lawsuit, this year we finally passed an HBCU funding mechanism uh, piece of legislation that was $58 million over the next 10 years. Mm. Uh, vetoed it. Classic example, because I know y'all know some of these people, even though I know it was none of you, but I know you know some of those people who went out in 26, uh, 2018 and said, well, Hogan's not that bad. I kind of like him. Okay? It isn't about that. It was about who was going to further the policies that were going to favor us. And I submit to you, the Ben Dallas were the governor. We have our blueprint to excellent education, and we have our HBCUs and a, a lot of other things. Probably, you know, better unemployment and insurance throughout this process and many other things. So that is what is so important. That's the education that we have to have and we need. And as a product of a PWI, two of them, uh, <laughs> I agree with everything you're saying. In fact, when I graduated, um, after I finished at Loyola and then University of Baltimore Law School, I said I would never send my child to a white school because of my experience. The only blessing that I had is that I come from a, a black liberation freedom fighter family. So I was already formed by the time I got there. But most that's people don't have that experience. Exactly, exactly. And that's why HBCUs are so important. So we moved, we, we've moved way into the south. The way we get our kids there is we gotta support them and make sure they're funded. Because I went to a PWI because that's who gave me a scholarship. And that happened because they got the money. Mm-hmm. Understandable. And that's a lot of it too, is a lot of HBCUs do not have the resources. Yeah. And, be- and before we move to, here's another ask as we leverage the, 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 the power of the voices here is okay. a lot of our PWIs or, or colleges in general, but definitely PWIs, they get their federal dollars for how many diversity comes to the door, not how many graduate. Ooh. What would it look like if we held them accountable Here's one of my visions with the Association of Black Psychologists, and I think about that. I would like to see well, look, if we designed our own criteria by which we're going to assess every graduate program in terms of how many black students are recruited, retained, graduated, how many faculty are, are, are brought into tenure, and more specifically, does black psychology show up in the literature and critically examining that? And, and so what would that look like if we had our own criteria and publicize that so that when our youth are thinking about where do I want to go to become a psychologist, they should be able to look and see which one is going to do the least harm, let's be very clear, the least harm. Yeah. And more specifically, how do we rephrase that question? Not how do I become a good clinical, how do I become a good black psychologist? Because you must be black first so you know that your psychology is in a service of. If you do it any other way, then you are vulnerable to being set up to do someone else's madness work. So can, can, I just, can I just like uh, add, I don't no, agree with, with anything that anyone has said, but I, I want to add to that, that as, as, Someone who went to, you know, two very well-known uh, white institutions, and at this point wouldn't change it. Um, I would say that I, I spent most of my life feeling like, you know, imposter syndrome because I I felt like I had people tell me 
Like when, when I graduated from Woodlawn High School and I was number one at Woodlawn High School and I was the first black valedictorian at Woodlawn High School. But one of my classmates who was white was like, well, you know, you only got into Harvard because you're black. And so I carried that with me. And really, I carried it with me until a couple of years ago when I realized how exceptional I was, like how exceptional I had to be to like go there and compete when I'm from like a single mother household and I went to public schools and I didn't have somebody to be tutoring to take the SAT. I just got in there on my scores. Like I didn't know all of that. I, I do think it's important for us to be represented in those spaces, if nothing else, to like watch what's happening and to be able to commune with everybody else and let them know what's going on. Um, and I also do think that there are, there are and, it, and it's not right, but it's a fact right now, that there is access and opportunities, there are opportunities that I have because of my affiliation with those institutions, yep. right or wrong. Right. They get the access that not everybody gets. And that helps. I was in Ambrose when I was in, 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 in college and some of my best friends went to Morgan. I Morgan, I know Morgan folks are tight. <laughs> and I know that my Morgan friends were just as smart, if not smarter, because they not only had the academic ability, but they also had a certain like just a common sense, like a just a worldview, a diversity of experience that made them better than the people that I went to college with who were privileged and, and, and sheltered. So like I know that, but I think it's important that, you know, people who need to First of all, we need to support HBCUs, no question. We have to do that because it's critically important to educating future black leaders. Absolutely. But I also just want to add that we should support. I want it all, Tanya. I want it all, Tanya. I want it all. You're right. I, but more importantly, I want black minds and spirits protected no matter where they're being educated. I'm reminded of a sister from South Africa, who a, a young sister who beautifully said that she remembers clearly having a passion, a fire for learning. But when she went to school, they threw water on it. Mm. That's what I'm saying. So again, tangible thing. How do we galvanize and ensure that education from the preschool to the boardroom protects black minds? Can I, can I just say that I think that one thing that's critical, and I'm glad you said that, is that whatever the mechanism, we have to be telling black children that they are beautiful and they are special and they are powerful and they can yep. do and, and And for me, like, yep. not a lot of people know this about me, but like my 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 father, like my real father was a criminal. Like my real father is a murderer, like an attempted murderer. And I didn't know that. And so, you know, Dr. Jackson, when you talk about like who you, who, how you grew up and like you didn't know what you were, like you didn't know what people thought you were supposed to be. I didn't know that because my mother never told me that. She told me your father was beautiful and talented and special and you're smart because he was smart. And, and and so I didn't learn that until after I became who I am. I wasn't saddled with that, like that baggage. I was allowed to just be great. And every child deserves that. And they don't get it. And that's what we're supposed to be doing when we, when we see each other, love each other. Up to Jackson for a second. Um, Jill is leaving us. Jill is leaving us. So I just, we just want to say thank you, Jill. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thank you, everybody. It was a pleasure. Thank you, right. Jill, Maybe for all your work. In your... Yes. Let's stay connected. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for your work. Go ahead, Dr. Jackson. Well, I was just going to say, to, to Tanya's point, 
That's what I mean by we have to collectively protect and love up black minds and get back to a space where it's not solely the responsibility of the parents. It's every one of our responsibilities. And it's also how do we, if, if I show up in the educational systems, if I'm supposed to be there, and, and you know you do this, if I'm supposed to be there as a custodian, I'm watching everything. And sometimes I fit, this is going back to what I said earlier, if it takes a village to raise a child, we got to be careful sometimes the village is hurting because the parents are dealing with such woundedness and they have such trauma from an educational system that they also leave their children abandoned in it. Okay. So that's, and so when I hear the work of Asia and other educators out here, you bring warmth to my heart because you're gatekeeping. But I'm here to tell you, we've got too many schools around this country that our black babies are left victimized to the intentional and unintentional racism from their educators and from the system in which they're sitting in. I'll give one quick example. So again, my children grew up in a very affluent area, but I can remember distinctly going to pick up my kids and, and one of them and, and this teaching me, she says, well, oh, so you're so-and-so's mom. Yeah, yeah, okay. May I ask you a question? Sure. Does, does he come from a broken home or an intact home? Mm. Real hard not to make the news that night, right? Okay. Like, <laughs> Psychologists, pediatric cannot be on the news. That is clearly a microaggression. That's clearly an assault. Yep. That's clearly somebody's value system. Whatever behavior my child was doing in there, if this face wasn't black, if that wasn't a black male child, she would have said something very different. Sure. So this, this is real. Dr. Jackson, can I tell you something? Like I have been, I have been accused of cheating. Because you can't be that smart, honey. There's half no a dozen times. I've never yeah. cheated. I've never cheated. But I've been accused of cheating. I was cheat, accused of cheating in college. I was accused of cheating in elementary school. And thankfully, my my mom was like, she's just smart. She's just smart. That you just have to accept it. My mother was willing to go and fight for me. For you. And, and yes, that's what but, happens when a mama can't do that when they're dealing with their own depression, like Sister Asia talking about that type of depression that cripples them. They can't get. That's some sick. This is going back to that Zola up, which is which is a Congo term for an activating love, that self-activating love, and it's what the emotional education circles activate, that we are all of our children's best keepers. Mm-hmm. So we got to step in and step up for every one of them, including their mamas and fathers. Wow. And, and back on this, on this myth that people keep telling us that there's no black fathers here, shame on you. And we say that so many times that mental health providers and now educators don't even look for a father. Mm. That's part of that is us. That's us buying into the system that we're not challenging it. So we have to always bring those collective voices together and say our babies are loved by all of us. Wow. Well, ladies, we're getting, I know you, I know you guys got more to say, and this is power. But we're getting close to the end, and I want everyone to get like their last thought. But I also want to ask our uh, small business owner a question. I want to ask um, Kira a question. Uh, when it comes to you being one of 10 black salons, nail salons, do you guys talk to each other? Do you guys coalesce? Because if you, like you said earlier, you have more clients and you, you're overbooked. Do you send them to another black salon? 
Absolutely. I send my clients to, absolutely, I send them to, it doesn't matter whatever, state by state, the DMV doesn't matter. I send them and I, and I actually, over COVID, we have, um, we had another radio show with all of the black owned salons. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with her name. Her name is Katie. We had like, we were on a panel with all the salon owners, the black owners salons in the, in Maryland. So we are all familiar with each other and we know each other. So yes, I do send them elsewhere. You know, okay. that's good. That's good because it's not many of you guys because the, you know, the agents, they run that system. But so. actually it's getting, it's getting better. I'm teaching, okay. I'm now teaching my daughter and my niece. So okay. it's, it's getting better. I offer to teach my son, not okay. the, not the, um, the all of the technicalities of it, but I just wanted him since he's born in that medi medical field. I offered him the medical part, like the medical school part of um of that. So, um, because I can I can train up to one per two people per year to get their license. Um, and um, and the in the industry, so you don't even have to go to school for it. I can just I can train and produce and two people each year. Amazing, amazing, and that's so. Cool. Um, Something because you have a salon, you can train two people a year. You're saying, right? Well, I can actually train four a year with the salon. Four. So, and if you pay to go to college school, it's about I think it's about fifteen thousand dollars at this point. Um, but I can, on an apprenticeship, I can do four people under each one under each person in the salon. Amazing. Okay, that's that's exactly what I want to know. That's a good. That's really good. All right, ladies. You know, we're close to the end. This has been so amazing. We, we might have to do it a few more times because we need to, um, we haven't, I want to talk about solutions uh, more or less at this, as we end this out. Like, what can we do now? Um, because everyone, of course, is working in their own situations and we are black centered and black forward. That's a great space. But how do we get outside entities into this space where we can really, like, like Sister Jackson said, we need to galvanize and, and, and have alliances and be able to have this power behind us. So um, in this last will and testament, like try to talk about that solution-based, um, community-based, Black-centered movements from henceforth on. Lenise, I know you've been trying to get in. You might want to say something before. So say something before, and then let's move on to your last will and testament, okay? Yeah, um, I know that um, one way that we can change society is through our education system. So the very first thing um, that I would do in the education system is rewrite the HR policies so that we have to give priority to teachers who are disproportionately represented in schools. So 80 plus percent of teachers are white females and black people have lots of trauma from white females. And that trauma is also vicarious. Our kids experience vicarious trauma from looking at things in the media that black, I mean, that white females do to black people. That's the first thing. But I also recognize that in the teacher prep programs, I was, like I said, I was an educator um, for 20 years, a district leader and a school leader. So I see this from different perspectives. And now I consult with superintendents. So I see it from all perspectives. And I'm a mom as well. I know that we have to help teacher prep programs 
to prepare teachers for the diversity that the contemporary classroom offers. And we have to be able to teach and teacher prep programs in a way that they see that diversity as an asset. I cannot tell you how often I'm sitting in a meeting and they're paying me huge bucks to explain to them why it is important to value their students' home culture, to bridge their home culture to the academic culture, reuse cultural references in their lessons that help students to assimilate that knowledge. And I talk to them about, I know that you have a special interest for your kids to learn. Do you want to work hard? Of course not. Well, you don't have to work hard if you speak their language. And I'm not talking about dialectic language because we have seven aspects of culture. How do you connect with youth? How do you teach them in a way that they understand? And not from a deficit-based perspective, right? So if we backward map and teach them that and teach a prep programs and use or hire professors, get them tenured that are uh, diverse, then we wouldn't have some of the problems we have. We are always reacting to a problem, not reverse engineering it and finding proactive approaches. So that's what I wanted to say about the education system. And we also have to have people in power that are of color and that represent people of color. So that, let's just, just because they're black don't mean that they're for your kids. So if my last will and testament, I told you that in the beginning that my research focuses on student belonging. I am adding value to the scholarly work around connecting um, student belonging to academic achievement because I do not believe that we have an achievement, a racial achievement gap. I think we have a racial belonging gap because belonging precedes motivation, which precedes academic achievement. And so my work around that is connecting the special interests of these reformists so that they can see that we have to first create and foster environments where students walk in and feel that it's democratic and that they're empowered to be there, that people are there to serve them. And that was the reason why I was so effective as a teacher was because I, I dropped the rope. That's what I call it. You own this whole thing because if I let you own your learning, I can get out the way. And we forget about that. There's this privilege and power and hierarchy that we maintain with professionals when we talk about kids. So we don't even talk about our positionality, our privilege and power as black people teaching kids. So it's, and it's indoctrinated in us and it's rewarded in every single classroom during our teacher prep programs. When we get into the school system, we conform to that system. And most of the time I'm talking to black educators, I'm listening to see if they're maladjusted. Because if they're not, we have no conversation. You represent the same entity. I don't want to deal with you. I just, my tolerance for people has just changed a lot. And I don't want to, I'm not angry and I don't want to get there. So I just say, you know what? You're not an ally. I don't care what color you are. I'm not supporting you. I'm not even working with you because you're working against me. Or, you know what I'm saying? So that's where I would go. I'm going to continue my research and continue to share that information with people of power because I know what their special interests are. Thank you, Miss Lanise. Tanya, jump on in here and give us uh, that last will and testament. Yeah, so I started off talking about the, the opportunity and the, the moment that I think we're in, and I just want to leave with that. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, I really, Lanise talking about her experience being in the Gifted and Talent program, that, like that resonates with me because that was my experience. And, um, and, and I remember being, being in middle school and like my classes were diverse. By the time I graduated, I was the only black 
person in the gifted and talent program in a predominantly black school? How does that happen? You know, it, it, like wh where are all those, all the people that were in class with me when I was in sixth grade and seventh grade? Like how, how do we lose them? Because they didn't become less smart. Something else happened. And, and so, you know, and what's crazy to me, honestly, is that my mom is white and I love her un, you know, unequivocally, 100%. But like everything that has been done to me from a racist perspective has been done by white people, white adults, mostly white women, you know, white educators who accused me of cheating, white educators who said, who like said, I, you know, I was bad, like white, that, that's what I'm like. And I carry that with me. I'm almost 50 years old. And I remember white people telling me to get out of the swimming pool, right? Like that shit, it, it damages you for the rest of your life. And we have the ability and the opportunity to spare future generations of black and brown children having that same baggage and trauma and carrying it with them. We have the, we have the knowledge and the resources to, to know that if we just let them know what's possible, and don't saddle them with all this negativity that they can be anything. And we know that we, we know that they have the potential to do that. So my, I would just say that I, I think we have a moment and I challenge all of us, whatever, whatever method we choose, whatever initiative we choose, whatever group we choose, whatever form we choose to take this opportunity to channel our efforts into something concrete and lasting that is going to benefit benefit black and brown people sometimes i forget about the unmute sorry guys all right um asia i'm gonna get you dr jackson i'm gonna let you be last so i'm gonna move through everybody because you're gonna give us a psychoanalysis <laughs> so asia jump in last will and testament all right um first off i think we can teach and mentor each other I'm a big fan of mentorship. And one of the reasons that I got into education in the first place was just taking my daughter to the playground and correcting children on the playground and having them follow me around and realizing how much they want that attention and how much they want that guidance. Uh, so I loved what I heard Kira say about, you know, she can teach people how to be nail technicians. She can teach them a trade, right? I love teaching teachers. Uh, I've learned so much over the time. So each one, teach one. Uh, second off, I say build power. I heard that we have to build our own power. And that's both economic and political. Um, in order to build that power, we have to speak truth to power. One thing that I love about the women on this call was we are all very powerful and I could tell all very honest and not afraid. And that takes courage and it's going to take courage to, to move forward. We have to organize. We have to connect. We have to support each other. Uh, I love what I heard. I wrote down respect begets respect. And that's definitely something that I've learned as a teacher. Even the toughest child will respond to you giving them respect. Right. Um, I also wrote down, so I said <laughs> gifted and talented. I guess we were all in the gifted and talented program. Um, how do we speak life into children? Because they're all gifted. 
So speaking life and recognizing each other's gifts and finding those gifts and then nurturing whatever gift it is that people have. I think in the education system we have right now, we reward reading and writing and speaking well. And all of us were probably able to do that, which is why we were labeled gifted. But I've had students who can put together anything that I give them. That's not my skill. That's not my gift. That's their gift. So I can nurture that in them. Uh, And finally, I just wrote down, just love each other. You know, that goes back to the HBCU piece. uh, When I said that we have a different level of self-esteem, we learned this self-love piece and how to love each other in a way that is so empowering. And love to me is the strongest force in the universe. So if we start with like really just remembering who we are and how powerful we are, then we can see each other and we can love each other. And that is how we win. Amazing. Amazing. Sister Kara, let's get a last one testament for our talk. Talk about your small business because we're going to all bring our black feet to your and our black fingers to your salon because you're black. Yes, and I am good at what I do. Actually, I'm the petty queen. I'm the petty queen. You better say it. You better say it. I'm the petty queen and the best who ever did it, of course. Excellent. Tell us what the salon is, the name of it, where it is. My salon is Nail Fetish, of course. Why wouldn't it be called anything else? It's Nail Fetish Salon, Nail Fetish Boutique. We are located at 6327 Bell Air Road um, between Glenmore and Northern Parkway. Um, we have four nail techs there. Um, it's somebody there for everyone. We do everything as basic as gel manicures all the way up to Cardi B nail. We do everything. It's full service. It's a one-stop shop. We do eyebrows. We do not do eyelashes. Um, but we do everything when it pertains to nails. We do it new, old, anything you can think of it, we do it. And we have all kinds of different clients, clientele. Um, even it's we, it's, a, it's like really insane. So our clientele, it, it, it varies. I would like to welcome all of you guys um, to the salon whenever you get a chance. Um, if you look at my website, nailfetishboutique.com, um, give us a look. Um, also, if you are on any social media, um, Facebook, we are on there as Nail Fetish Salon, as well as IG, as Nail Fetish Salon as well. Need to unmute again. They go to unmute again. All right, Sister Jackson. Close us down. Give us the last one testament. Mm-mm. First and foremost, I think I'm going to step into what I believe I'm the oldest here, so I'm going to take a little bit of liberty <laughs> and say, first and foremost, that our future is in good hands based mm-hmm. on my experiences with these dynamic women. And I also want to go back to something that Tanya said earlier on. Your generation no longer is responsible for teaching anybody about their own racism. Not your job. Not your job. I will gladly put in the talk in the space here now. There are many folks who are doing great anti-racist work. They can teach each other. What we need, what I want for us to have moving forward is as a people, how do we critically interrogate, revisit, 
look at what's called black psychology because the essence of black psychology is trying to use social scientific methods to pull forward cultural wisdom to say that what our mamas, our papas, our grandparents taught us was not some fly-by-night stuff. It was grounded in a social science. It was grounded in a cultural way of being. And I think that all of us need to critically look at that regardless of our discipline because the psychology of it sits everywhere. And if we arm ourselves with that kind of knowledge... There's an African proverb that says, if you chase a child home and the father answers the door, they're no longer afraid. And again, the father image can also be a mother. We're not limited by gender. What it really means is if you know who you are and whose you are, then you fear no one. Mm. So that would be my appetite that we critically look at the ways in which the lie of white supremacy and the lie of black inferiority has touched each and every one of us. And how do we dismantle that? Why they dismantle their anti-racism. And we can get that internalized oppression, internalized self-hatred out of us and step into our genius. And I'll close by saying, because this is our moment in time to do it. If we don't do it now, shame on us with the history books, because the other African proverb says that if a child does not feel embraced by the village, it will burn it down to feel its warmth. Mm. Wow. Now that's power. That's literal and metaphorical. That is, that is power. power. And we protest in the streets. The boardrooms, the education rooms, the science, everybody's stuff needs to be rocked. Everything needs to be challenged, re-envisioned, and taken over. And closing, because we are humanity. All lives matter when Black lives matter. Because otherwise, we're out of here. Peace and blessings for having me here. Ashe, to each and every one of you, this is dynamic. Ashe. Soldier on, my sister. Soldier on. Soldier on. Listen, Dr. Jackson, don't leave the room. But everyone, can you guys hear me? Can everyone hear me? Everybody hears me? Okay. Listen, this has been revolutionary. This has been um, a space that makes me feel so loved by, by, by women who are soldiering in their positions but also thinking of others and the less fortunate or who we could have been without the support and without how, how bright we are. And some of us had a lot of luck too. So, you know, it's some things that was all in the play for us because we could easily be that, that person that's not informed, not woke. That can happen to us too. But we're in a space where we, we are doing very well in our lives and we're thinking about black people. So I feel so encouraged. I really appreciate the input from everyone here. Black women are so magical. It's, it's, so, it's so unbelievable sometimes um, when, you don't, when you're not around black women all the time. We are utterly unstoppable. Um, we're magical. We're special. We bring life. We brought, we brought everyone's life. And we have to continue to um, move our community forward, support our children but we definitely have to find coalitions with each other. We're too intelligent to be apart. We have to bring this together. We're going to do this again, ladies. 
and um, do some uh, and, and really bring some more community ladies in so we can help people who don't have the resources that we have. Is that cool, ladies? That's, yeah. the, that's, that's the community wisdom. Yep. Without them. We need this. We definitely yes. need this. So listen, um, you know, I'm going to stay late with everyone. Age, you got to unmute too. We got to hear your voice before it's over. <laughs> Everybody unmute. Because <laughs> we're going to love each other. We out of here. So Tanya, Lanise, Sister Jackson, Kira, Kalila, Jill Scott, Asia Maxton, Black Box Radio says thank you. Queen says thank you. The thank community you. says thank you. I appreciate you ladies. Thank you so much. Appreciate you too. Blessings. Blessings to all of you. Okay. Take care, ladies. Lola up. And everyone who was Lola up. Nice job. Yes, everyone. Lola up. Thank you, Danny. (laughs) Yes, your audience, we appreciate you guys. Thank you for listening in to these powerful ladies. Thank you, thank you. And remember what this feels like. So when you are when you think you're alone, remember this feltness because you're not alone. You're not alone. Yes. We got you back. G, can you um, come on in for a second? Dr. Jackson, this is really wonderful. Thank you, Greg. Really, I really appreciate appreciate your your background, what you brought to the table. Um, because that thing about Zola, I'm not really sure what that is. It's, it's, it's an activating love. It's an action-oriented love. It's a protective love. It's agency. It, 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 as I said, it comes out of the Kikongo, um, a language in South Africa. And it's, it's a spirited love. It's an action-oriented love. And I would say that that is part of when they took our language from us and took our practices from us, it was the Zola in us that got our people through that madness. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it. Because we have to love up on each other. That's important. Absolutely, absolutely. I gotta love you enough to say, "Baby, can you please pull up your pants?" Yep, yep. I'm I'm a proponent of that. Love, love, love. I love on people because I just love them. I want them to feel better. I want them to smile. So it's important. It's really important. So when it came to the the panel, what do you think about? We had some power. Them ladies is powerful. You know, little 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 Miss Tanya, honey. Ooh, Tanya Banya. Tanya, the brilliance <laughs> of Lanise. I mean, yes. the courage of Kira. I mean, mm-hmm. hearing in her is a courage. And yes. And that's why I wanted to, to honor her story and add to it. Yes. Right? Um, because there is truly value in being intentional about seeking out blackness. Yes. And I wanted to, but I, but I, and I also wanted to honor her space. Yes, ma'am. So, so I just think it was a great group. Uh, Sister Jill was right on point. You yes. Know, um, especially when they look when they started calling out the guy, I just kind of sat back and was learning. <laughs> yeah, they was calling it out, wasn't they? Calling them out, calling them out. So, them, and that's what we have to do. It's it's not personal. It is we we for us to get in a better space, we have to call out our own too. Right. And if, but, you, but you know what someone taught me and I think it's true is that it, politics is personal. Personal is politics. Mm. Fact, that's how we should, because it's that real. Mm-hmm. Right? Be, yep. because, because it has that much impact on our quality of lives. And if we understood the personalness of politics, then we would hang in there a little harder and deeper. That, that's true. That's true. And I, I really wanted to be intentional about having a small business owner. 
You know, I didn't expect for her to expound if she didn't want to, but I wanted, we need community members with around brilliance. Mm -hmm. And not that she isn't brilliant in her space, but these type of ladies that were on this call, you, 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 never, you might not have a chance to touch them. Absolutely. So, so for, you know, and we, we need to go to these businesses with women who are, act, who are in the community doing different, in different spaces, doing different things. So I thought I was real intentional about having a small business owner, especially because we're getting our nails done and we, we feel in a whole nother community with our money, you know, and we have to direct this money to black families, black children, you know, mm -hmm. black spaces. So I think that's really important too. We can talk power all day, but we have to be intentional about how we apply the power. Right, absolutely. So yeah. again, thank you for the invitation. You do have, I think I sent you that spokesperson list for us as well too. So you sure. have to reach out to any one of my, my members on there for future talks as well. You know, each mm -hmm. one of them will bring another gift, another space, another okay. way of thinking, but I think that you'll be pleasantly pleased with all they bring. So are you trying to divorce yourself from my panel? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to see what's going on. I'm spreading the love. I am definitely. Let's pull this back a little. I guess right. I feel like she needed to pull out that fan real quick. Yeah. Like, look, <laughs> get that fan out. You I'm, you know, you got me this time, but I sent you the list. So next time, you know. Next time, don't be calling on me. Fan that thing out, saying, "Look, hey, fall back." You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm trying to give you more because you okay. can have somebody from ABC on here every week. Is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> well, I really need somebody. I want to do a youth forum. So we got a younger therapist, you know, not not because you can come with your loving way. It's so nurturing. I would love. But, you know, sometimes youth want to see you. It's something about them. They want to see you. All of that. We have students. That's what I'm saying. So we okay. do have our next generation there as well, too. So we Good. do have all those resources for you. Well, I will, I will look at that list. I, you better. I got it. You better, because she, she put she your nose like, look, hey, you know what time <laughs> it is. But I want to be invited back as well, too. <laughs> All right. But I, listen. Let me just um, make a, a I, I do, you mentioned some things that you shared and. Um, you folks, still want all of this recorded? I'm just, I just. Oh, we, yeah, yeah, we're recording. We're still recording. This is the reflection. And, oh, and, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's like the reflect. at the party, you know. Oh, we, we still recording, so yeah, yeah, we still Remember recording. Remember I told you I wanted you to stay on and let's do a little reflection. So. Yeah, I think just for folks who um, are listening, so a lot of people popped in late and weren't able to stay. Um, if you're watching this now, that means you're watching it on a replay. It is going to be published on blackboxradio.com. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're listening live here and you missed part of it, you can see the entire replay on blackboxradio.com. Mm -hmm. It's probably published next week in our, in our queue. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also going to be published in audio form on all of the po podcast platforms if you are a listener of podcasts. You can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, um, all the places where you listen to podcasts. So just, I know there's still people in the chat and there's stuff that people put in the chat. I just want okay. to take a second to acknowledge and encourage folks who might have missed part of the conversation. You do have a chance to listen back later at all of those places. Okay. And, that, and that's excellent because some people need to know that. So yeah, Dr. Jackson, that's, this is a reflection that I just wanted to hear like your final analysis because we had a lot of power on this panel. Kalila left early. She's a power pack. She, and, she, she, um, she dropped her mic and kept kicking. Okay. Oh my. <laughs> she set us off and kept she kicking. She set us off. 
you know, and then Tanya came in and whipped us all over, and yes. then Lanice and her quiet fire. Right. I, I think the first thing that we can, that this panel has demonstrated, particularly since we were just invited to come to a conversation, just to be clear for our listeners, we did not have access to your questions ahead of time. And at least for me, I'm meeting all these women for the first time. I say that to say, because look at the black magic that happened. Yes. Right? All we need to do is be in each other's space. And yep. have stories that, that um, mirror one another, that affirm each other, and we have encouragement. And you can see the courageous work of each of these women in their own little spaces and places. That's what I'm saying. If we keep multiplying that, then we are a real force. We keep forgetting that we're in isolation from one another, and we keep buying into this idea of I'm the only one. If what would happen if, as we said, we walk away from these Zoom calls, these spaces for affirmation that my people are right here with me. This spirit energy is right here with me as I sit at this boardroom with the only black face, as I sit in this classroom or this educational space. This talk for me reaffirmed the spiritness in us, the that, that, that proverb again, I am because we are, we are because I am. This was evidence of it. You can pull any one of us together and we're going to have a critical conversation. And that's what we need to be having is critical conversations at the kitchen table, multi, multi-generational, listening to each other, deeply listening, not judging and teaching and talking over, but deeply listening and then sharing our own stories and bearing witness to that. That's what these women reminded us of. And, and as I said, for me, it's no mistake that it's coming out of a feminine energy because that is the life force of all humanity. Wow. Wow, that's, that's, the, that's final. You just bust it open. I don't have to say another word. <laughs> I don't have to say another word. Gene, you want to add anything? <laughs> no, I just want to uh, just remind everyone that uh, you can find all of the great conversations and the content that we've been producing at blackboxradio.com. I'll spell it out for you. It's B-L-A-K-B-O-X-X-R-A-D-I-O.com. Uh, there you can find all of our conversations. This series of conversations is just beginning now. So make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss a single one of them. Uh, and we really appreciate everyone for listening in. We do. There's the right voice for that. Donnie has the whiskey. Is that like a prerequisite with a little types of roll? A little sugar cane. It's a whiskey voice, a little deep whiskey with some sugar cane. You know, it's it's unbelievable. And and Queen, we got to be clear the energy that shows up here is fed by you. You set the stage. So your spirit brought it here. So you knew who you were bringing to the table. Yeah, I I really worked hard on you ladies. And I, because I know it's so important. And for, the community to see you ladies, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes we don't even know our pine our warriors. We don't have a clue where they are and to be able to define them, let them speak and understand that they're for some fighting. of us. <laughs> yeah, that we're fighting. <laughs> exactly. That we're in this fight too. Not because we're in a certain position, we're fighting, you know, we're fighting for the cause too. So Dr. Jackson, listen, from the bottom of my heart, I hum- I'm so humbly grateful for your appearance tonight. 
with us this afternoon. Thank you. And um, all of the ladies, we say thank you. This has been after COVID, after protests, existing as Black Lives That Matter, the woman's version. Um, it's been powerful. Check it out on blackboxradio.com. We are out. Peace. Peace and love. Peace and love.